What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 41 of the Noise Podcast, brought to you by Noise.co.uk and sponsored by Stereo Brain Records. I am your host slash your boy, Chris Pugh, and I'm joined, as ever, by my very good friend and Mr. Cynical himself, Samuel Lewis. Mate, how are you? I am fantastic, mate. It's great to be back on again. Mate, I'm as excited as ever I am. Not only have we got an absolute shit ton of stuff to talk about today, dude, me and you are on like our last week before a six-week break. Is there any yes, great? Are, is there a greater sentence I've ever said in my entire life? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's been um, it's been wonderful to look forward to this, and also to have you joining me oh. on this uh, extended period of time is is going to be marvelous. We spoke about do. this. We spoke about this for years. Do you remember? Yeah, like, we have the years where you obviously you've had your six weeks break, and I, I said like, dude, there's a parallel universe where somewhere where I am also in the school system too. And I have a six-week break at the same time as you, and we just—I just, I just wish there wasn't such a bullshit world scenario going on at the moment, so we could actually enjoy it. But regardless, my six weeks off, I ain't gonna complain. Absolutely not. Um, it's worth—it's worth noting that this is the first time we've both had six weeks off t- since you were eighteen. Oh, that's a long—that's nearly ten years ago. I'm gonna quickly move on. <laughs> <laughs> We are a fortnightly rock and metal podcast, as I mentioned, sponsored by the wonderful folks of Stereo Brain Records. We're available on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much wherever you can uh, find a podcast. Uh, on our last episode, uh, The Blizzard of Oz by Ozzy Osbourne entered our greatest metal album of all time list at number 12. And we had album reviews on Fox Jaws, Royal Swan and Buried Tomorrow's Cannibal. Uh, on this episode... Uh, me and Sam caught Suicide Silence's live stream in London. Uh, our greatest metal album of all time, this continues. And we've got album reviews on Asylum's Genetic Cabaret and a Return from Misery Signals from, with Ultraviolet. Also got Luke Rainsford on the Chris Meets interview. Luke Rainsford is a guy that are, I'm very privileged and happy that we got to get back on the show. Uh, because me and you interviewed Luke, Sam, four years ago. On our at old, least. on Absolutely our old podcast, least. yeah, on our old podcast when we really weren't very good at this, uh, and Luke was an absolute darling man, lovely guy, and he put up with us being not very good, uh, and he, he gave us a good interview then. And Luke's, as I go on to mention in the interview, Luke's career has just um, shot up several echelons since then. So it was really great to speak to him because I, I haven't actually had a conversation with Luke for, as we mentioned on the interview, three and a half, four years. So. Great to catch up with him and, and uh, discuss all the great things he's been achieving. If you could like the video on YouTube, subscribe to us on YouTube or subscribe to us wherever you're listening to the show and also tell a friend, that would be absolutely awesome. Uh, before we get into the show, I wanted to mention as well that Power Festival, uh, which is the festival that uh, Stereo Brain Records owner uh, Luke Priestley and Callum put on, that is returning in 2021. I wanted to make a quick mention of that because that was announced at 10 o'clock Monday morning, this is going to be out on Tuesday evening. So, looking forward to seeing the lot they deliver there. Always a really great place for emerging underground artists. Sam, I just as we get into the show, just wanted to quickly ask did you catch mm. the news of Berry Tomorrow's album chart rankings? Yeah, it, I saw it very briefly. It done quite well, hadn't it? If I remember, done great. Cannibal did great, mate. It finished 10th. Which that's incredible, you know, me and you, more me than you. I, I yeah, I, I still I believe. So. I still believe that we have seen musically. We've seen Berry Tomorrow's peak. I do believe, and mm. I don't think me and you need to explain the the concept of the idea of commercial success and 
musical quality success, they don't always align. And I'm pretty sure we don't need to explain that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, mate, what I'm, I'm really happy for them. That's a really great... It, it, I know it's in a world right at the moment where album sales are really are starting to diminish in, term, in terms of importance more and more so every year. But this is still like a wicked thing for metal and more so for Barry Tomorrow Band who deserve it, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's It's more of a signal of their... Because what happens here tends to be this billboard thing is, is that as the band gets more followers, just by virtue of, 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 of building a base and, and touring and working hard, that every album becomes more successful as the one previously because of that sort of snowball um, consistency where, where it just continues and rolls on and on. And it's a signal that Berry Tomorrow are becoming a legitimately big band. And I think that is a fantastic thing for British metal, regardless of any qualms that we might have had with their last piece of material, which was not a bad album by any stretch. No, no. Um, I, I, I really liked it in parts. You, you were not as, um, you were more ambivalent towards it as you had been in past Barry Tomorrow songs, but, uh, Barry Tomorrow albums, but we both agree. It's, it's a really good album sort of in a vacuum. And it, it's a pleasing thing to see that the, the, this band who've always worked hard, always been consistent <clears throat> and not have kept themselves out of trouble. Um, they deserve it. And I, I agree with you. I, I'm delighted that the bands like this are getting the breaks that they deserve. I'd be curious to see the actual sales amount compared to Black Flame, which was their previous highest, uh, previous highest uh, charting album, which was I think twenty fifth or twenty third on the uh, UK chart. I would be curious to see whether Cannibal actually sold more than Black Flame, or it's just the fact that people are buying even less records in twenty twenty than they were in twenty eighteen, and Cannibal didn't actually sell more, but it charted higher. Did you see what I'm saying there? I, I, I understand. There's a touch of cynicism in what you're saying there. But, um... <laughs> yeah, there is. And I don't, mean, I don't mean that, but I'm just saying because I, someone could potentially like point the finger at me and be like, ha, you said they'd peaked and Cannibal finished 13 places higher than Black Flame. And again, the concept of commercial success doesn't always uh, match up to quality no, of music. Absolutely but, not. But I'm just I'm trying to like find a way for me to weasel it, and that in case I never point that finger at me. Um, <laughs> You're getting you come back in early, I appreciate it. I mate, think you've got it. As a side, of, of course, mate. Start with a comeback and move backwards from there. It's always yeah. the best way. But um, what I will suggest is that you might have a point, um, but I don't expect there to be so much de- decrease from. 2018 to 2020 to take a band from 23rd to 10th. Does that make no, sense? No, no. So there's still an element of increases and they're surely to go up 13 whole places, I would say. I think the uh, difference unless, is if... Sorry, go on. You know, been a, no, it's all I was going to say, unless there's just been like a, not just a, a decrease, but like an absolute collapse in purchases altogether. If there was going to be a decrease, I think it would be incredibly minor. I'm talking like 50 copies either side. I don't believe it would have been like they only sold 3,000 copies and they ended up 10th. I think like if Black Flame sold, I don't know how many Black Flame sold, but let's just, if it's 23rd, let's say it sold like 13,000 copies. I'd say Cannibal, you know, if you put a gun to me and said, how many do you think it sold? I'd probably say in and around that ballpark. So I, I, I would just be curious to see which sold more. You know what, dude? If this ends up like with Barry Tomorrow headlining Alexandra Palace on a one-off show, then fucking great for them, man, because they're, they're, a, they're a good band who absolutely deserve the break. And if anything, mate, gives an opportunity for Barry Tomorrow to do what I know they would do, take out two young bands who'd need the exposure, just like they did on the last tour that me and you were at, where they put employed to serve and blood youth on support, two young, very good British bands who needed the exposure. 
absolutely um if Ber- the bigger berry tomorrow are the better for british metal and people that are into that that music period speaking of live shows sam we caught yes. one in a, a brand new setting for me and you Mm-hmm. Uh, we gra- we caught ourselves uh, watching Suicide Silence's live stream from London. And Suicide Silence have done this kind of like virtual world tour, where each city gets a unique like login, where you can see them live streaming the show, where they're actually performing it live. Uh, Sam, before we get into the details, that's as good a concept as you can possibly make in this current situation, is it not? Completely agreed. It is the the best and easiest way for a group to contact their fans without endangering any lives while also allowing the band to perform. It's the perfect setting. Now, my stream, sadly, did cut out quite frequently. I haven't spoken to you about it. Did yours? I had some buffering issues, yeah. I had to refresh a number of times. Quite frequently, mine was, like, cutting out. So I didn't actually... I I think there were, like, decent chunks that I missed. I know that the interval stuff, um, the intermission stuff I missed, which I was really gutted about because it seemed like they were doing, like, really cool, interesting, quite funny things. But I didn't catch a a single one of them because as soon as as they go into an intermission... As soon as they go into, like, an intermission, it started, completely froze, and then would refresh when they started the next song. Um, so I guess it, I'm leaving it to you to tell me here. Was the intermission <laughs> stuff as funny as well as, as what it looked like it was going to be? Yeah, it was really, really great. There were like faked interviews and little skits and stuff and like random little clips where it's like, um, like help using suicide silence to like help you do your dishes and stuff and all right, sort okay. of like random, random little bits and bobs. And then like, random little interviews with the band members and then clips of them like on tour and on nights out and after shows and just joking with each other. It was, if you're, if you're a big fan of Suicide Silence, that would have been like properly valuable material that would have been really, really nice for you to, to see. But also I enjoyed it because it was just seeing the other side of a band and seeing that sense of humor and seeing that level of personality that just by listening to the music, you wouldn't necessarily associate with that band because, you know, the music is so heavy and so dark. Um, but obviously there's this other side to the band and seeing that element of personality as well, I think is fantastic for the fans and gave a completely different edge to the concept of what a gig performance can be in 2020 when you can't necessarily have people at venues. I thought it was a really nice touch and some of the stuff I thought really, really worked. Speaking about the show itself... Suicide Silence have done quite well to save their careers, haven't they? Because we spoke about their self-titled album, uh, which yeah. I appreciated the attempt, but you know it didn't work. Uh, the branch, yeah, ab- absolutely, the, that's well said. Branching into a more into a more atmospheric, uh, deftonesy um, vibe did just you know it just didn't work. It's as simple as that. You, you, you can't stretch that out any other way. Uh, Become the hunter. We reviewed actually uh, this February. Yep. I really, I really was into it, man. Um, I really liked it. I kind of knew it was going to be an album that was more catered towards me. You liked it, but you thought it was a bit one paced. Um, talking about this live show, that you can see that the inner workings of the band that they've got the deathcore performance nailed down to a T, haven't they? Oh, absolutely. No this, this, yeah. The, the, they didn't seem to break a sweat playing half of these songs. And, um, we, we made a, we made a, we made a little conversation between us during this performance, uh, as of 
We talk about the level of success that I've had, but there is absolutely no doubt in the world that Eddie Hamida is a terrific, terrific deathcore vocalist. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, his ability to just like CJ, uh, CJ-esque in Thigh Artist Murder, his ability to flick a switch without any effort at all and, 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 and make these sort of growls and screams and, and grunts that are inhuman sounding is never unimpressive and the same with the guitarists and the drummers ability to play what any listener would be able to note is incredibly difficult stuff ridiculously easy the level of effort it takes to not just be able to play stuff like that but to be able to play that without having to think about stuff like that to be able to play that easily is an extraordinary level of talent and being reminded of that will never not be impressive i always talk about this um from person to person and me and you have had this conversation, but the the minimum level of skill you have to be to be a good metal musician is the highest watermark, I think, in music outside of being like a jazz drummer in like the 30s or something, or like an or like a or like a lead orchestra member for like a philharmonic orchestra in America or around the world. You know what I mean? Like for like a normal amateur level um and by that, I mean, like, you're not a philharmonic orchestra, like, you're not a classical musician. To be from zero, like, self-taught to full-time musician, the gap is biggest, I think, for the average metal musician. And these guys are a level even beyond that. And that is never unimpressive. Lots of cool stuff here. The Chucked You Only Live Once in, like, mid-set, which I thought was wicked, and I didn't yeah. see coming. Uh, and they did a fan vote, uh, which, like, the made the fans pick between two songs uh, for which the price of beauty won uh, these kind of little nuances thrown in really just add something a little different to the experience we all know that it sucks that we're watching this live stream through we're watching this gig through a live stream but there's a comment section on the right hand side where fans are kicking off everyone's being nice to each other and everyone's just like loving the band when the uh, some I, I assume someone on the band's pr when they were getting a second was replying to, to certain bands and mentioning uh, certain fans sorry and mentioning certain aspects of the show these things i think were really important as part of making it this like kind of communal effort. And I really enjoyed this. I thought it was a really clever way for Suicide Science to bring the world tour together. I completely agree. I think that if it would have just been a straight videoed performance, it may have lost some of the energy and intensity by just the absence of being actually in the presence of the band doing the thing. And adding this extra element of stuff, at least, while didn't completely replace what would be lost by the person-to-person experience. It adds a different element of stuff that would be completely impossible to do in a normal gig setting, especially a smaller gig. And it allowed them to really experiment with stuff. Also, though, also though, wouldn't you like to see more bands do setlist polls pre-gig? Yeah, man, I'm well into that idea. Um, like, especially big bands that have large back catalogues where where fans get frustrated, like fans get frustrated by seeing the same band over a long period of time and being like, I want to hear some of the obscure songs to fan and giving them, giving fans in each region, the chance to log in or vote, contribute to something and have a say in the experience that they want to have from the band. Because let's be frank, the band probably doesn't make a great deal of difference to them. They've wrote every song, played every song everywhere. 
and having the fans experience that, especially because a lot of us can't follow these bands around the country on the off chance that the set list changes, I think is a is a lovely touch. I would love to see that. Honestly, I would love to see more bands doing that uh, as a regular thing. Yeah, man, because like, obviously you, when a band's touring a new album, you're expecting four or five songs off that locked in, no problem. You'd expect the opener and the closer to be predetermined, no problem. But the other songs around the set, I think that's a, that would be a really great concept if they were like, for every for like each individual show, people go on a vote for what they want. Obviously, you wouldn't give them the whole discography to choose from because then it would be too difficult to really nail it down. But give them like three choices. I think that'd be a, I think that'd be a really awesome thing for bands to pick up on. I agree. I, Metallica did it famously a couple of years ago. They did a couple of Metallica by request shows, and it was a lovely touch. Actually, they didn't tell the band, they didn't tell the audience until it was time to play the song, what song it was going to be, and then it would come on the screen behind the band, like like a. I don't know how to explain it. Like there was different words flashing on the screen, then it would stop, and then the song title would appear. That's sick. And then it was like, oh, okay. Uh, we're going to play Frantic. Oh, it's Welcome Home Sanitarium. Do you know what I mean? Like, God, and the band, because like, Metallica can play anything, can't they? You could say, yeah. I'll play Fade to Black, and they've played that for 40 years or whatever. Wouldn't be a problem. And then just seeing that, like, uh, just the, I think the level of excitement being just like, the in the set, waiting for the song to appear, Yeah, I think that'd be amazing. So uh, but I'd love to see more bands do that, because the bands are so talented. The bands are so talented, and then you have an off chance of hearing something that no other band, uh, the, the band hasn't played for like a year or two years or three to five years or something like that. And you, and those are the moments that you talk to your friends about. And I think that's a lovely thing. We mentioned live streams, Sam. You might hate me for starting this conversation with you, and I'll, I'll try and keep a rein on how <laughs> a rain on how long okay. we go. Uh, Trivium. Trivium did yes. a live stream a few days ago. I think it was on Saturday night. I didn't, yeah. I didn't catch it. I'm very upset with myself. Uh, Silos is supported. I'm going to see if I can um, find a way to, to go back and watch it. Anyway, my Twitter, because obviously I follow a lot of people that would have these discussions. My Twitter, my, too, actually. Mate, my Twitter was just Trivium, Trivium, Trivium. This is amazing. Oh, my God. I fucking love Trivium. Like, the new songs sound amazing. Uh, oh, fucking Trivium, one of the best bands in the world. Da, 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 da. I was going to read this set list that they dropped, Sam. Um, what the Dead Men Say, Down From The Sky, Catastrophist, The Heart From Your Hate, Forsake Not The Dream, Defiant, Paul Harder dropped in randomly at eight. Go on, then. <laughs> uh, until the world goes cold, beyond oblivion, rain, yes. Uh, amongst the shadows and the stones, yes. Sickness unto you, strife, yes. Uh, blending to me, absolutely yes. Throws of perdition, yes. Uh, sin in the sentence, sin in the sentence, and then capsizing the sea, of course, into in waves. Right, and honestly, mate, like my the Twitter was kicking off, and uh, it was one of the reasons why I really want to go back and watch this. Now, one of the things that caught my attention that I thought, right, fuck it. We talk about it all the time, but let's just, let's just have another conversation about it. Uh, download, Sam. We, we and you have had this conversation ad nauseum about uh, a lowering list of availability to Andy Copping and to Live Nation execs in terms of booking bands for download, especially in the headline capacity. Now, Trivium... I kind of looked at as one of those bands that are one of Download's own, aren't they? Yes, 100%. Because of that 2005 performance that really changed things for Trivium. And 
you see, Trivium, when they tour the UK, they are an academy-sized band, aren't they? Uh, we saw them in an academy, mentioned this before, Code Orange supported Venom Prison Paratrip, fucking amazing evening. But, and, and I, I saw Trivium download third, on the, a third from headline. But, I think so, yeah. But in, in the world that we're in now, in terms of a download, where the headline list is shortening, and Trivium are one of downloads on. Could they do a co-headline? Do you think it's still too... Well, this is the thing, isn't it? So you couldn't... Well, you couldn't co-headline them with, like, Avenged Sevenfold, because the the difference in size is too great, isn't it? Avenged Sevenfold are astronomically larger than Trivium. It's not even close. Yes. Um... You couldn't, could you co-headline them with Lamb of God? I don't think you could co-headline them with Lamb of God either. Because I think the difference stylistically, it doesn't make sense, does it? Like a corn and link biscuit headline makes sense, doesn't it? But Trivium and Lamb of God, I'm not so sure about that. I, I, may, I mean, obviously, I'd be there, I'd be for it because I fucking love Trivium and I love Lamb of God, but I'd, I'm not sure how much it would actually work. So Trivium and Parkway, let's talk about that. Parkway uh, playing Wembley in their next UK tour, which has now been postponed. Right, in Parkway would be the last band on out of the two of them. Parkway have headlined Wacken. Oh, so, yeah. Do you know what could, I mean? Could they do it? Trivia and Parkway co headline? Could you reckon they could? <sighs> See, when, you, when we're asking this question, we're asking whether 30,000 people would turn up. I don't know whether 30,000 people would turn up for that. I think if there were, I mean, it's 30,000 people, of which 80,000 would already be there. I think, I think so. I think so. I think. I think it's more accurate, personally. Not necessarily a co-headline, but they're like... They're the last but one band, but it's a bigger set. And it's like, you know, you're like second and a half or first and a half. You're like 1B to Parkway's 1A, I guess. But I, I really think that to make it work, you'd have to do like a Parkway... Trivium, Lamb of God run like three bands with like chunked together or like Kill Switch Engage or something like that or have Trivium as like this, the last band on before Metallica or something like that um, rather than a, a, than, a, than a co-headline. I think Trivium if the question you're asking me is are Trivium capable of that or Trivium going to pull this, the crowd in I think so I think so but I also think that they're still better suited to be in the sub-headliner. 50 minutes second, sec, Yeah, second to last band on. The majority of people are already waiting for the next big metal band after you. But you get, yeah, you get 45 minutes to an hour. You can, you can have some fun with the lights and stuff and it's getting dark. I think they could definitely do that. But the next band on would have to be Avenged or Metallica. Maybe Parkway Drive, but a metal band where fans of the headlining band would also be fans of Trivium. There couldn't be a sway. You couldn't have Trivium playing the last but set before like... Muse or Kiss. something. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. My Chemical Romance or Linkin Park or one of those sort of bands because there'd just be such a swathe of people coming and going. You kind of want people to get there at nine and relatively speaking, stay there. Uh, and and I, think, I think it could work. Or maybe Slipknot. You know, if Trivium were the last band on before Slipknot, I think that would work. 
Like, if you're a Trivium fan, aren't you also a Slipknot fan? Relatively speaking. Are we getting to the point where Andy Copping and the Live Nation execs that book download have got little choice to take a risk? In the the sense of, like, dude, that that list is really getting thin now. Well, yeah, absolutely. There are there aren't many bands left that are actually not retired or way too old to be playing the set. And yeah, at at some point, the the next band or pass to play, the next band or pass to play. I mean, Download has been built on stuff like this. Like when when Download started in like eighteen eighty one, they were they were like they'd be headlined by like Rainbow had like three albums. Yeah, or like like ACDC that had just replaced Bon Scott, and fair enough, Back in Black was obviously massive and it worked out. But that not every band was like a nailed-on, guaranteed winner. At some point, you're going to have to give a headliner to a band that's got more than ten years left in the tank. And as well, as well, frankly, it's not just the bands that are getting older. It's the people that go see the bands that are getting older. Yeah. Like, if you're in your late 60s and your favourite band is Ozzy Osbourne and Led Zeppelin and stuff like that, late 50s, early 60s, like, that's our parents' age. My, my dad would rather you hung him up and shot him than take him to a five-day festival now <laughs> at his age. He just wouldn't be interested. Yeah, uh, yeah. Do, do you know what I mean? So these, like, grizzled download veterans are going to drop off like flies as well. It's going to get to the point where the demographic is mostly people in their twenties and thirties. So why not cater? Why not cater to that? Me and you have mentioned before the idea of maybe download drops to two days. Because yeah. because they will you never know, do that though. I, I mean, the, I mean, they'll never do that. But I think in the back of their mind, they'd be. I think there's a chance that they're talking about the idea. Of, Fucking, I'd be great if we could, because. Like what uh, the headliners for, but it was meant to be for download 2020 was Iron Maiden, Kiss, System of a Down. Obviously, there was a huge amount of the download fan base that was really happy to see that. But then there was the outside fan base, which was like, oh, fucking download, recycling headliners again. What a surprise. And those people really annoy me, they do, in the sense of like, that. I feel like some of those people, not everyone, but some of them are, the, are those that would be like, oh, I loved Parkway in 2010, but now they're not a fucking metalcore band anymore, so fuck Parkway, I'm not going to go and support them. Do you the exact parallel? There's a parallel world where there's a hundred thousand people that would go and see like a deathcore show all at once. Well, that's what I mean. It's like, do you exist? That audience isn't there, dude. You're the exact reason why Parkway aren't headlining download because you're the guy that's like, well, no, never done the same like they did in 2010. I'm not going to support them anymore. Well, okay, cool, but you're not allowed to then complain about the fact that download haven't took a real chance on putting fucking Parkway as headline if you're not going to support them and thousands of others aren't going to support them. Fuck you. Absolutely. That's the reason why they changed in the first place is because this world exists where bands that <laughs> bands that write big songs get on big stages. Like yeah. it, well, it is really that fucking simple. Like, look at the Spotify plays, friends. Yeah. Yeah. Like, look at Parkway Drive, Spotify plays, right? And Horizons has been out for a decade. I will not speak against it. We both agree. Absolute banger of an album. What do you think their top five songs on Spotify are? Three of them are on Reverence. Yeah, well, there it is. There it is. Do you know what I mean? So because, you know what, like, there aren't 100,000 people who would go to download who only like obscure death metal. 
Otherwise, we'd have fucking rock clubs instead of slugs and lettuces everywhere. <laughs> people like rock music at a push, but essentially people like pop music masquerading as another genre. That's why it's yeah. called pop music. It's fucking popular. Like, it frustrates me so much, Chris, because people, are, and I love obscure metal. Obscure metal, I fucking love it. But I don't want to go to a festival that's been headlined by fucking Dimu Borgia. <laughs> For some I reason, want... I knew you were going to say that artist. I don't know why, I just knew you were gonna... <laughs> Or like Evil Scarecrow. Not interested, bro. Not interested. Because they're, they're not good enough to headline a festival. They're just yeah. not. The songs aren't big enough. You know, you understand, you have to write a song that 80,000 people have to know and yeah. enjoy. 80,000 at once. There's like 10 artists in the world that are able to, to do that consistently. I, I, I agree with you. It's absolutely astonishing. And that's why Avenged are big, because they wrote that sort of music. That's why Bring Me the Horizon are now massive. Yeah. And that's why Parkway headlined Bloodstock last year. If Parkway was still bringing out Atlas and, 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 and Horizons, they would not be headlining Bloodstock. We'd be seeing them in a tent adjacent yeah. from fucking Thin Lizzy or some yeah, version yeah. of Thin Lizzy because Phil Lynn has been dead for 35 years. Yeah. Because they wrote, it, fuck it. Do you know I see your point. Like, I see your point. Do you, know, do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, it's just very frustrating that people don't see the wood for the trees here. Like, this is the world we live in. I wanted to bring it up because there's a strong chance that me and you will be at Download next year, which is very exciting to say. It's not a nail. <laughs> it's not. A, it's not a nailed on definite, but there's a strong possibility, which is just the greatest. Uh, apart from the six weeks holiday that I mentioned at the start of the show, that's the second greatest sentence I've ever said. So I did want to mention it because a lot of people on my on my Twitter were saying Trivium can headline Download. They can. They can. And I'm like, oh, dude, I'd love them to, but they they can't. I'm sorry. Like, and that's why I'm thinking about co-headlining. And that's why, because, again, the list is shortening. I feel like a download's hand might be forced to just be like, fuck, we're going to have to give someone young. Or not a trivium, not exactly a young band. I haven't gone since 2004, but we're going to have to give, like, a younger band that aren't yet a guaranteed arena tour sellout a crack. Like, Parkway Drive, they're playing Wembley, but they wouldn't sell out a UK arena tour. If they did a, a, like started the hydro in Glasgow or, in Glasgow or something, I went straight the way down the country playing arenas and finished in Wembley. They wouldn't sell out every show. I now, I, I, well, no, I don't. I don't believe they would because they've never tried to do that. So I haven't got the evidence to say they wouldn't. But I don't believe that they would. Like they saw that Alexandra Palace, amazing for them. Oh my god, it was a great show. Uh, massive crowd at Bloodstock. We were there. Fucking great show. So happy for them. I believe they're very close to at Wembley. Great for them. But a full UK arena tour, I don't believe so. Uh, and that and that's the bar, really, for download, isn't it? For, for download to be considered a potential headliner, you need to be selling out UK arena tours. Uh, and that's the problem when it comes to, like, oh, Parkway headline Bloodstock. Yeah, dude, Bloodstock is, like, getting promoted from the championship and fucking download is Champions League final. Like, it's that big of a jump. Like, Bloodstock is a lot. 15,000 people festival. Download can fit 120 max capacity. It's a fucking astronomical jump. So, yeah, you see the difficulty that we're in. Absolutely. I mean, Slayer have never headlined download. Well, that's Mega a great Death point. have never done head download download. Anthrax yeah. have never headlined download. Machine Head have never headlined download. 
Lamb of God have never headlined downloads. Like, what? What do you know what I mean? Like, there is there is a massive digression between what we think these bands are and what actual headliners are. The only answer is Bring Me the Horizon. Yep, as we've said before, with our, and, I, and, I, and I said Architect subheadline. That's what I've been crying for. It's the only answer. And Download need to do it before Glastonbury get there first. Yep. Because Michael Evis has his finger closer to the pulse of modern music than most festival goers. Yep. He gets there early every time. He saw, he saw the Mumford & Sons buzz and was like, they'll be big enough. He, he put Arctic Monkeys on after like two albums because he knew they were huge. Beyond yeah. saying, do you know what I mean? I, yeah, he like gets he it, sees he? That he sees it absolutely, he knows where music is at that moment. And he's not afraid to take that chance. And if he books Bring Me, especially if this album is poppy and, and popular, I mean, like, he's had Metallica, so like, this, is not, this would not be a leap for him. Um, then Download of Forever lost that headliner. Because then it'll seem like it'll be different then. It'll be like, yeah. so you've taken a Glastonbury headliner. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It, it takes from a different industry, whereas at the moment, Bring Me still got enough feet in the metal camp to do this first. And if that means sucking the pride up, and you know maybe apologising for their treatment at Download Festivals in years past, then that's what you might have to do because they are the biggest British rock group at the moment who aren't at least fifty-five years old. And aren't the Foo Fighters who've never been able to play for some infuriating reason? I'm sure we're going to revisit this conversation somewhere in the download lineup gets announced in Without October doubt, time. Uh, but, I do, but I do want to move on, Sam. Uh, we're going to go on to number 11 on the greatest metal album of all time list. Now, just for anyone listening, uh, Sam, you've done amazingly well here. Uh, gone, we've gone all the way from 100. Oh, we are now at 11. For anyone who has forgotten, after this point, we are going to stop doing them uh, bringing the uh, album list into the fortnightly show and there will now be weekly shows which include depictions of each album so for the top 10 they are going to get an episode each which i'm very very excited to do um and there's going to be a lot of really lengthy detailed conversations obviously we've tried to bring a bit more detail into the top 20 but i've also had to fit it around two other album reviews and other discussions and interviews whereas with the discussion solely on one album we'll be able to go an hour or however long we want to go talking as in depth on the album as we would like sam just before we hit 11 could you remind us of the uh top 20 thus far yeah of course uh 20 we had metallica's opening album kill them all at 19 we had guns and rose appetite for destruction at 18 we had linkin park hybrid theory doesn't he feel ages ago yeah um, metallica um and justice for all at 17 at 16 we had sister of a dance toxicity 15 was ACDC's Highway to Hell. 14 was Judas Priest, British Steel. 13 was Machine Heads, The Blackening. 12 was Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz. And 11 is Megadeth's Peace Cells, But Who's Buying? In my opinion, one of the more fascinating selections thus far. Mm -hmm. uh, band's second studio album, Sam? Yes. I believe it was, yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. Released in September 1986. Dude. I'm pretty sure this is not the last time we'll be talking about 1986 in this list. <laughs> I shouldn't think so, my friend. I shouldn't think so. Snapshot thoughts on you on this record before we really go into detail? 
um, the first year, the first time the world was truly introduced to Dave Mustaine as the front man of Megadeth rather than the ex-guitarist of Metallica and the album that cemented him as one of metal's great guitarists and most unique sounding vocalists. Famously kicked out of Metallica for being like such a heavy, excessive drinker and then supposedly moved on to hardcore drugs in Megadeth. So, nice to know his lessons. One of the fascinating aspects of this record is it's got a Metacritic store, score of 83. Now, please, please, anyone that's listening to this, I am not saying the Metacritic is the be-all and end-all of, of um, review scores. I'm not saying that everything, that if Metacritic has got a score of 90 plus, that means it's great. I'm just saying that Metacritic do like an average, an aggregate score. And and this got a score of 83. Now, I find that interesting because for a record that we now look back at as absolutely instrumental in the lifeline, the birth, the true introduction of thrash metal, you would expect that it would have been even more warmly received do you think that with a Metacritic score of 83, that gives credence to the idea of sometimes you need to live with the idea of something before you can truly discover how great it is? A little bit, a little bit. And I think that there were a lot of, a lot of elements that go into this Megadeth album perhaps being poorly rated by, by Metacritic in comparison to its contemporaries of this year in that, of the three albums that came out this year that changed the face of metal, this is unshakably one of them, alongside Raining Blood and Master of Puppets, obviously. But it is easily the most obscure and acquired taste of the three. Yeah. It, without doubt, is it is 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 those things, um, but no less, but no less, no less important. So I would, I would absolutely agree with you that that there are. Sometimes you have to live with it. I think it's an interesting phrase that you need to spend a little bit more time digesting this album than perhaps it doesn't hit you in the face as quickly as Slayer's Rainy Blood and it isn't as um, intricate or thoughtful as Metallica's Master of Puppets, but I don't think many albums ever released are, so that's a difficult comparison. Um, if this album came out in 1987, it might have been warmly received. It might have been better received in 1987, just simply by association with the, the other two that it came out this year. But the reason that it is on this list is it is, even now, and I've listened to it a few times, obviously, over the course of the week. I'm a big fan of Megadeth anyway, so I want to say that out loud for um, that. So that you probably think that will colour my my, um, my analysis here. But I, I think I think Dave Mustaine is one of the most unique guitar players I've ever heard. And um, his style of songwriting has never been repeated in thrash metal at all, and let alone his style of playing riffs. And... You listen to this album and it is immediately unmistakable and, and, and completely noticeable that you are listening to a master at work, despite the horrendous circumstances in which this album was produced and written, um, but also a couple of the most iconic thrash metal songs of the 1980s, despite really um, not being a massive band and not really having particularly huge choruses or melodies in that way at all. These are iconic songs and cult classics because of the style of songwriting, but by no means are they like ACDC level hits. So it's an interesting album from a number of perspectives. So I think that those have sort of contributed to the Metacritic score because it's not a traditional sounding metal album or even a traditional sounding thrash metal album, I don't think. 
I mean, we've got a whole section of this list dedicated to albums that are great, but we've got a cinecultural and historical impact before we determine how great they are, didn't we? Mm-hmm. Or, or, did, or, or, did, or didn't you would be a better way to phrase that. <laughs> so I think that, I think that uh, this album potentially, considering it's got a Metacritic score of 83, would, would, would fall into that line of thinking in the sense of like, obviously when it comes out in 1986, people aren't aware of the next 30 years that's about to come. Mm-hmm. off the back of this I mean Peace Sells But Who's Buying has been widely credited as one of the albums that really forged and gave extreme and death metal part of kind of like one of the original playground ideas to really move from because there are there are parts of this album that are monstrously like sludgy heavy which yes. there wasn't there wasn't a mass amount of in the mid 80s and- no I, I agree I agree do you think, how much do you think it bothers Dave Mustaine that Megadeth are considered, you know, they're the third band, aren't they? You know, they're, they're the third most influential album in 1986. They're third on the big four listing. Uh, there's a, a very interesting um, interview with Dave Mustaine on the Some Kind of Monster documentary with Metallica, where Dave Mustaine's like basically saying, I wish I was an alcoholic in 1984, because I really wish I was still in the band, kind of. Do, do you remember what I'm on about? Yeah, He's like, I I'll, do. Regret, I'll, I'll regret that day for the rest of my life. And, it, and that, obviously, you would regret it, because Metallica are the biggest metal band of all time. And although Megadeth are massively successful, the, the difference between Megadeth and Metallica is absolutely astronomical. So, how much do you think... It, bothers Dave and the band? I think he's made his peace with it in the last few years, but definitely during the 80s, 90s and 2000s, Dave Mustaine was and had been an extraordinarily bitter and resentful person towards the the Metallica stuff. Um, And he talked about it in that sort of um, interview that you mentioned that people just shout Metallica at him. Yeah. as a way to insult him. Yeah. And that's got a grind, hasn't it? Yeah. And then also, um, right in two of the, I mean, Rust in Peace was 24 on this list because um, it didn't impact thrash metal as much as, as this one did. Um, but two at the very least of the greatest thrash metal albums ever. Rust in Peace is the greatest thrash metal album of the 90s, without shadow of a doubt, it's not even close. And, um, he wrote those two albums pretty much himself whilst dealing with heroin and drugs and all that sort of stuff. And then he just, every time he produces his best work, the band he got kicked out with are like leagues ahead every time. Yeah. Absolutely every time. And that, that has to be incredibly, incredibly frustrating. It kind of reminds me a little bit and you're going to roll your eyes at this comparison, but the Michael Jordan thing. Right. And, um, but I watched the last dance documentary and there was a moment and I'll only, talk about it briefly Charles Barkley played the Jordan Bulls in 1993 Michael was the was the best player and Barkley said I had the best game of my career I was the MVP of the league he put he scored like 40 and 20 uh, 40 points like 15 rebounds shot really really well and Michael just scored more and they won the game and he said that was the only time that was the first time he'd ever felt like he wasn't the best player in the world this is Charles Barkley speaking and and this and, and that sort of realization sucks because you go through your whole life brilliant at something and then you get right to the top of your game and somebody else is better yeah and this is this is the disappointment that Dave Mustaine faces who without a shadow of a doubt Chris um 
one of the great metal songwriters ever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of one of the great metal guitarists ever. There's a very short list of guitarists you put even close to Dave Mustaine. A man who forgot how to learn guitar and taught it himself again after all the nerves in his hand went to the level that he can play as well. Just an extraordinarily talented individual. And then every time his band do really well, um, James and Lars just do one slightly better. And it's got to haunt him. And definitely it has. Uh, the bassist, David Ellison, uh, referred to this record as the Heroin, Cigarettes and Hamburgers album, which depicts kind <laughs> of where Megadeth were at the time. Uh, a lot of homelessness and addiction running through the band. And again, yes. this, this isn't the first time that you would discuss a band and they are prospering in their difficult circumstance. But as you get into this record, you really pick apart what an amazing feat of songwriting Peace Sells But Who's Buying is just by the performance aspect it's kind of challenging to pick the album apart in the sense of this album is so centred around the guitars of Dave Mustaine and Chris Poland in, from my experience listening and I'm not saying yeah. that I'm not saying that there were poor performances from a drummer or bassist I'm just saying that Peace Sells But Who's Buying is centred around Dave and Chris Poland, is it not? Oh, absolutely. The, the, every song is based around their harmonies with each other there. The, the, like I said, there is, there's barely a chorus in some of these albums. Yeah. Like Wake Up, Wake Up Dead, which is my favourite Megadeth song. I adore that song. It's just him narrating this situation for the first 15 seconds at the start of the song. And then them just fucking soloing. But it's so good that the riff changes and, and all this sort of stuff. It's like, it's, it's like a separate narrative in itself. And when it, when it pauses at the end of Wake Up Dead and it kicks in with that second riff, yeah. that dun, funky dun, one dun, at the end. And he does that solo over it where he's like playing different parts of the neck simultaneously. Dun, bam, bam, wow, it's unbelievable. It's like the guitar has replaced the vocalist. It's quite clear at that point that Dave either had little interest in being a vocalist or just thought he wasn't good enough at it to really give it the effort he wanted to. But fuck me, what a superb collection of guitarists here. And there are so many little moments where guitars are the centrepiece. Obviously, Wake Up Dead is the start. Obviously, Peace Sells is more bass-centred because that bass lick at the start is iconic. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. yeah, it's incredible. Um, but also, like, Devil's Island... Where they just play that down, down, down. Fucking love like, the solo. I and love he the solo. And comes in over Devil's the top Island. of it with that yeah. ridiculous collection of sweeps at the start. I love the solo on Devil's Island and the, and the conjuring as well. Fuck. Yeah, the, 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 the absolutely the conjuring and the the good is it bad album Black Friday, Good Morning Black Friday sort of combination with a clean guitar yeah. at the start. Yeah, absolutely sensational guitar work from start to finish, and I. I I've rarely heard, and we talked to this a bit with Randy Rhodes on Blizzard of Oz, and we've talked a little bit about this, maybe Metallica and Justice for All and that sort of stuff, and Slash on Appetite for Destruction, where the guitarist takes on a life of its own beyond just what a guitar is capable of, in the sense that it's not just centred around the guitar. The guitar is doing the vocals as well as separate melodies, and they create these narratives and storylines almost employed through the guitar licks. So from that perspective, it is just an astonishing piece of music. One of the really cool things that I picked up and loved about this record, you were talking 
uh, a few weeks ago when you put ACDC's Highway to Heaven. And you were like, this isn't a metal album, but I'm telling you now, this really influenced metal like you would not believe. Man, you listen to I Ain't Superstitious and tell me that ACDC didn't influence metal. Absolutely, absolutely. Or blues in, absolute, blues in general as well, like a massive, massive thing. And I think it's a weird song. It, it seems to, it's a sore thumb of the album in the way that it completely stands out from the rest of the, the, rest of the style of the song, but I completely agreed. Like, this is, this is like a, one of the great thrash metal albums of all time. And it's like, it's a blues cover at the end. It's so strange. When you, and you alluded to it, I think that I like how out of this Master Puppets and Raining Blood, they all sound largely different to each other. And, you know, obviously Slayer brings the outright pace. Metallica got like the anthemic progressive ideas. And I think this is a more centered, sludgier classic metal sound. And, Dave Mustaine spends a lot of time being protected vocally on this record, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he's low in the mix. Um, Black Friday and Good Morning is probably the longest time he spends actually singing, I think. Yes. Across the whole album. Um, I mean, you know, much like we were saying with Ozzy Osbourne, Dave Mustaine's vocals have never been his main strength. You know, no, I don't think, I, you know, that that's not what we were expecting from him. Um, but with that said, his vocals did dramatically improve by the time Rusty in Peace came out. Um, objectively, Sam, not, yeah. not, not not thinking about the idea of uh, Peace Stars, but who's buying ended up being like this this massive like move forward for ex- what would become extreme metal. Objectively, do you think that Rusty in Peace is a better record than this? It's definitely more polished. It's definitely... Um, it's definitely better produced and, and he's at times more intelligent and, and, and less sloppy at times. Um, from start to finish as a complete work, I think it is the better album. Um, but I think Peace Cells has the higher points. I think uh, you say that Holy War, The Punishment is Due and Hangar 18 are the highlights of Rust in Peace. I would take Wake Up Dead and Peace Cells as those as songs over the, over the previous two, just as a, a personal preference because... I think that the opening verse to Peace Cells is some of the funniest and most accurate, witty political analysis that he manages to squeeze in four lines. He manages to completely summarise every corruption in in American political history. Um, It's like, what do you mean I can't pay my my bills? Why do you think I'm broke? Just summarising the poverty of American society and all this sort of stuff and they're talking to himself and oh, I can't be the president, still we the people, right? And it, it's all so snarky. That That is the side of, of Dave Mustaine that I love. And that is the side of Dave Mustaine that no other band's been able to replicate is that sense of humour and wit. And there's like a real needling cynicism to Dave that he, he just comes across here that I think makes up for the vocal performance in and of itself because in peace cells he's not singing is he it's almost no. like he's just speaking he's yeah he's riffing over the over the over the music himself almost like he's having like a an internal dialogue um and i, I just love that I, I love that this doesn't sound like anything else and i love that he doesn't try to be bruce dickinson or tom araya or any or you know ronnie james dio you know just like, he plays with strengths so he tells jokes and writes little snarky statements and then gets to what he's really good at. I love that. I love the way that he's managed to create this metal band around his strengths 
and completely put aside the weaknesses. And as much as he might regret not being in Metallica, I'm glad that he's not because yeah. we've got this. Yeah. We've got the ver- because he's you couldn't have built you can't build a band around Kirk Hammett like you could around Dave Mustaine. No. Um, but Dave Mustaine absolutely could not be the second banana behind James Hetfield for 30 years. Only no. Kirk Hammett could do that. Um, there's a the great story where Kirk Hammett writes Enter Sandman and Lars Ulrich restructures the riff for him. And it turns into what it became. And we'll get to that later when we eventually discuss the, the Black Album, which, surprise, surprise, is in this list. <laughs> um, Dave Mustaine just wouldn't have taken constructive criticism from Lars Ulrich. No. It just would not have happened. The riff would have been written how he wrote it with, it, with James Hetfield. And there might have been different versions of Metallica that would have just blown our minds. Like, just different stuff. Like, the Unjustice for All period with Dave Mustaine instead of Kirk Hammett would have been legitimately incredible but they also wouldn't have written the melodic stuff in the same way because dave just wasn't that type of guitarist he couldn't do it he couldn't he's never written a beautiful song he's written a few beautiful moments but never like kirk hammett's been able to do on fade to black or welcome on sanitarium it's just nothing like that so i am this has worked out the best for us because we got a Dave Mustaine was able to construct a band around himself and take advantage of his mercurial talents. And Metallica were able to find the plug-in that they needed to become the hit factory that they became later, that they needed consistency and reliability. And Dave Mustaine would absolutely not have been that. Do you imagine Dave Mustaine in the 91 to 93 Metallica Black Album tour? He would have died. He would have died. He wouldn't have survived, like, for real. So I am very glad for this set of circumstances um, because Peace Sells is an example that when given the keys, he can create some extraordinary music. This album's legendary influence, it goes without saying, doesn't it? But I think objectively, I prefer Rust in Peace as well. But obviously this this record absolutely deserves its place in, in heavy metal and thrash metal folklore. I think that this is one of the rare albums that I could ever listen to where I could honestly say, if that was an instrumental, I wouldn't mind. Vocals are such a massive part to my enjoyment of music. But I can honestly say that the structure of the instrumentation on Peace Sells But Who's Buying is to such a level, I think I'd still really love this album if it was instrumental. And that is probably the best compliment I can give it. And you probably know that's the best compliment I'd give it as well, knowing how much you know me. Absolutely agreed. Absolutely agreed. I think as well, um, David Ellison doesn't get enough um, credit as one of metal's great bassists um, because it's so he's so prominent in the mix. And when they're soloing, it's he he is the rhythm section. Yeah, and um, it goes from that intro to piece cells to the start of Wake Up Dead, which is just the drums and the bass, and that's it's incredible. And he was the consistency that, that tied that band together for absolute years. Um, while all the other band members changed around him and Dave. And that is a, that is a testament to their, their musical sort of ability here. I agree. Uh, 1986 um, was, the, was the before and after of, of, of modern extreme metal. And we'll get to this in a, probably a bit more detail, probably more appropriate to do so with Slayer and, and Metallica later on. But in a short world, you can kind of split metal into two points and i've said this several times you can split it into 1970 before and after 
you can split it into 1980 before and after and you can absolutely do that with 1986 and then you can definitely do that with maybe 1991 when Nirvana came around and everything changed from there this is one of those before and after moments that opened the door for extreme metal extreme thrash metal um no megadeth uh, metallica and slayer um no sepultura machine head pantera um and um and, ba- and bands of that ilk carcass um american heavy metal thrash metal bands morbid angel these sort of extreme black metal bands all birthed from thrash metal originally especially american thrash metal and as well if you're a guitarist or listening to this album um you suddenly think to yourself oh so i don't need to be a great vocalist i don't need to find a great vocalist i can be popular by the strength of my ability to play and i think that's a massive thing as well um is that Dave Mustaine and James Hetfield and Tom Araya did more for the the advancement of the non-melodic vocalists as much as scream metal did later on in years. Um, because to have music entirely centred around what the guitar could do to this extent led to progressive metal and more extreme metals and things like that. And we, without which we may not have had the vast expansion of bands like the ones that we enjoyed earlier on the live streams like Suicide Silence and especially bands like Trivium and Silosis. And I can absolutely guarantee uh, you could have a conversation with Matt Heafy about Dave Mustaine. And I'm pretty sure you could talk to members of Silosis about their guitars as well, uh, their guitar work as well, in terms of the stuff that it goes on, uh, the stuff that happens there. Because one side moment as well, um, did, is there ever a, a more noticeable, and it's like, it's right up there with the, the Rob Flynn pinch harmonic uh, as the Dave Mustaine chord. Do you know the one I'm talking about? Where it's like, that's all over this record. Every, like every couple of bars, it's just this random high note that he's just able to beautifully work in to the lower riffs. It calls it the spider riff. And I've seen him play it live. It's like, I'm like, not live, live, but YouTube and stuff where he actually explains it. And what he does is he gets all four of his fingers over the fret at the same time and moves the middle ones up and down while his index and pinky do the other riffs. It's extraordinary to see the dexterity of why he's able to just move within chords and stuff. And that's how he's able to add these little high notes and stuff. There's not, there's not a guitarist in the world that can do that the way that he does it. It's like he's up there with like Eddie Van Halen in terms of like unique sounding guitarists. And that alone... Um, gave birth to so much over the coming decades. So for me, obviously, uh, well worth its selection here. I think that's a great place to, to leave this list before we break into the uh, episodes dedicated to each album. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, Agreed. And, that, and I think that what, we've man- what you've managed to do here when we've, when we've spoke about this is uh, justify each album's place, even when... even when you take away objectivity mm-hmm. in the sense of like, obviously if this is my, if this is my personal list, obviously toxicity, you know, would not be outside the top 10. Um, no? but I think that the way that you've, you've created this and the way we spoke about it has always given credence to the idea of this is about impact and quality as opposed to just quality alone. So um, really looking forward to getting into the top 10, man. You and me both, mate. You and me both. Dude, what a left turn we're going to take now because we are discussing <laughs> uh, Genetic Cabaret by Asylums, 
Uh, it's out on the 17th of July via Cool Thing Records. Uh, the reason why I've said what a left turn this is, is because if you ask me to... These are not a, a thrash metal band, that's yeah, fucking why. If you put a gun to my head and said, uh, Chris, you've got to name me two most disparate uh, albums ever. I probably I might say Genetic Cab Around Peace, who's buying. Uh, Sam, can I open this by telling you that this album was produced by Steve Albini. Uh, he did In Utero by Nirvana. Oh, okay. So this is already the best album he's produced then. That's good. <laughs> Your hatred for that album really makes me laugh. Um, my, my hatred for everybody else's lack of hatred <laughs> actually supersedes that. Like, I don't understand why I'm like on my own over here. <laughs> Mine and your ears are generally much closer to the ground on emerging metal bands. I think that's fair to say. Um, yes. And I was starting to get quite conscious of us pigeonholing ourselves. So I purposefully looked for something. A little bit, I've been purposefully looking for different things, like Fox Jaw on our last episode, which we really dug. A really good, solid album there. Um, and I was starting to get a bit nervous about us literally just doing metalcore, 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 or heavy metal, death metal. So I decided to start look, look branching out. And here I landed on an album that, blends it's kind of part rock part brick pop uh s- small elements of punk a large elements of indie and in terms of like mainstream rock i kind of started to stop paying pay attention when bands like imagine dragons uh bastille and uh, jake bug were being like plastered and pushed towards the front lines. I was like, right, I'm fucking out of here. This isn't for me. Obviously, I've always paid attention to bands like the Dirty Nil, who are a fucking great young rock band. Uh, Black Peaks, fucking love Black Peaks. Um, Marmosets, adore Marmosets. But in terms of like mainstream sounding rock, apart from Biffy Clyro, who I will probably love till my last fucking breath, I just I started getting really out of it in like the mid to in like the mid 2010s um and there's something about this record genetic cabaret that falls somewhere for me between stone roses stereophonics and arctic monkeys without really committing to either sound which i kind of love uh, would you agree uh a little bit with uh, the stone rose connection i can see I would throw in a little bit of Manic Street Preachers, a little yeah. bit of Stereophonics, um, a little bit of Frank Carter. Um, yeah. Where, but where did where did you break out of mainstream rock? Because I, I feel like me and you were in the same position here. Were you literally the same in the same uh, format as me? A bit. I I sort of faded with um, like sort of Arctic Monkeys um, when they started third or fourth album 2010 2011 that sort of stuff i sort of went away from it at that point i enjoyed the first indie explosion so i was a big fan of um arctic monkeys pigeon detectors i thought were pretty decent i thought um razor light were all right um those those sort of bands that came through i was i was i was big into that indie explosion for the first couple of years and then it kind of just carried on and i i left the bus at that point because i felt i'd already heard the best of that genre yeah that's Uh, fair to say that's fair to say I would I would dip back in occasionally, um, like with like hardcore punk bands that feel a bit like classic rock and roll, like like Gallows. Always felt to me like a classic rock band being yeah. dressed up and pushed on stage as a punk band, and like then smaller bands like I Cried Wolf and stuff like that would always sort of get me back in. And early Death of Anna sounded a bit more like a, a pop, yeah, punk, hard rock band. You know what I mean? 
so that was where I was delving. But by by the late two thousands, early two thousand and tens, I was a, I was I, I'd moved on to some heavier stuff and would only leave towards rock for the classics. Right. So you broke out of British rock quite. Uh, uh, quite an, a long while before me. To be fair, I think that might be down to my love for Yumi at six as well at that time. Yeah, I think that that, that might have been one of the reasons why I was still hanging around. But come like 2014, 2015, where my love for them started to kind of like peter off. And then you've, like I say, fucking Imagine Dragons, people trying to convince me that fucking Imagine Dragons are the next, are like one of the great rock bands of the current day. I'm like, fuck you. No, they are not. I'm, I'm, no, I'm not paying attention to this. Um, so with that said, Sam, um, with this album that kind of is like kind of a multi-pronged attack on what was Britpop, what did become modern British rock, uh, where are you sitting with this? Because I like this record. I think this is good. I, I I like I really like elements of this album. I think that the album gets better as it goes along. I think the second half of this album is terrific. Um, but where it where it where it loses me on the other side of that is that some of the times I think it opens in a repetitive kind of way where the songs can sort of meld into each other a little bit. And the, the most enjoyment I had out of it is when it broke away from the staccato rock and roll staple type of songwriting. So I enjoyed this album the most when they tried not to be a regular rock band. And I enjoyed it the most when they broke away from that songwriting structure. Uh, but overall, I do like this album. I think there's a lot of potential in this band. And I think there are genuine moments here and brilliant couple of really, really excellent songs that I think should propel them um, further up the ladder. I think for me, one of the most telltale signs of how much I like a record of this ilk in 2020 is whether I, is whether it manages to keep my attention for its um, full length, which this did. Um, because I think there are elements of this album that are, which are really, really intelligently written. Um, I agree. If I just quickly skip up to lyrics from uh, Town uh, Full of Boarded Up Windows. Um, yeah. Stuck in a thought that won't remain and we're just passing through, throwing petrol on the fire, a prison cell with a sea view, can distance some home truths you were drinking to remember. Uh, and then if I uh, quickly uh, drop down a little bit, it's where it comes about uh, the real art of politics. A swing vote can swing your moods as to let signs surround you among a litany of lawyers, modern convenience and greed for a derelict town tumbleweed and summons down the wire. I mean, that is a, a, such a fucking brilliant depiction of working class inner city life. That is fucking... I was listening to that song and I was like, this is fucking... Considering like we're like West Midlands lads. I mean, holy shit, were they fucking writing this song about Wolverhampton or what? Do you know what I mean? Like, with like the difficulty in the high street, with the difficulty of... Yeah, yeah. Of, uh, with, the difficult, with, the, with the importance of your vote that some people just don't seem to uh, grasp the importance of, with the difficulty of finding new housing accommodation, etc. I, I fucking thought that was a genius uh, songwriting. And also the structuring of the chorus as well. I really dig. And there's just this kind of... I mean, this album is fucking mega 90s, isn't it? This is such a 90s record. 
it definitely has the feel of of like late nineties, early two thousands. Like it, the, these these guys would look would not look out of place on like the Mercury Awards or yeah. Jules Holland or supporting like Jarvis Cocker or something like that. That sort of like Blur esque sort of feel to them, and uh, where it's like guys in skinny jeans and tweed blazers and stuff and smoking roll ups. That's the sort of image that I get. But I agree with you. Uh, I want to rattle through some of the highlights for me, which I think might take you a little bit by surprise because I, I, I imagine that you expected me to slight this album. Um, well, but... I've got to say, I, when I listened to it, I thought this might be a hard sell for Sam, so I'm really glad it wasn't. Yeah, so I think some of the highlights for me, because it's, 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 it's better that we go down that, that route and stuff, it's that, um, the, the, like you said, Town Full of Boardy Windows, I love that what does it mean to be real lyric. Yeah. And that love sort of ascending chorus at the end, I thought was really, really good. Um, I really, really liked um, the 9, 10, 11 run of uh, Yuppie Germs, which I thought was the most up-tempo, legitimately energetic, genuine punk song of the album. And I, that, that, really, that really worked well after a few sort of mid-tempo type songs. Um, the title track, Genetic Cabaret, uh, at that point of the album was, for me, the easily the best song um, because the, I loved the intro. I loved the subtlety of the chords with that like sort of low guitar in the background, just providing a little high pitch melody, which I thought was a lovely juxtaposition. And then it kicked into that type uh, scar type riff yeah. with the bass line sort of rolling around. And that completely took me by surprise in the best way. I was really, really impressed with that. Um, return to the somber intro at the end of that song, which I thought was really, really nice, really full, um, showed some real depth of songwriting. And the, the final track, I adored Dull Days. Um, I thought the clean guitar with his vocals. And I remember thinking a few times this album, he actually writes better melodies than he can sing sometimes in the sense that, and this is no disrespecting whatsoever, but there were a couple of moments here where he sung a melody, you know, when he goes a bit falsetto and he's really right at the edge of his range vocally, yeah. you can really hear him like, and it's, it's like he's, the song, the melody he's wrote and the song that he's put together is so clever that even it's beyond almost him at times, which I kind of enjoyed because there's something endearing about a band that's rough around the edges that nothing is, everything's not polished and stuff. And I thought that was just a lovely end, lovely end to the album. And for me, it really brought me back because um, the first couple of songs I heard, the, the first opening tracks of this, I, I didn't dislike, but I thought that I could have, I was like, oh, if it's going to be like this all the album, I could do this review in 30 seconds. Right. Um, because like it was just a bit repetitive at times and it was like, all right, this is like that post-indie, quirky sense of humour type band where um, the verse is really great and really funny and interesting, but the choruses aren't strong enough to carry the song overall. There was, um, there was, there was points like Perfect Life in a Perfect World where... The chorus was repeated several times throughout the song. I just didn't think it was strong enough to be the centre of that sort of song. I think they could have gone in a different direction. But overall, there were real moments of heart and wit and some real, real songwriting notes here that took me by surprise and really surprised me later on in the album and completely, completely conflicted what I thought about the album was going to be. And like I said, I enjoyed this album the most when it tried to go beyond... This, the cliched blueprint that indie has often provided over the last 25 years. And I think that there's some real, real talent in this band that I do hope that they harbour uh, over the coming years. Funny this, I actually preferred the first half of the record. That's really strange, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, Why is that? Well, because I think that 
Mate, the, for a start, I think the lyrics on Town Full of Boarded Up Windows are fucking brilliant. And it's so intelligently written. Um, I also, mate, I love Catalog Kids, uh, the, the, the opening track. Fucking great chorus. And I think I actually like um, Perfect Life in a Perfect World because it's got that, I think that chorus is very 2006 Arctic Monkeys. I'm not saying it executes it to the same level, but it chases that same pattern of big anthem. Uh, which... That's a bit feeder-esque. Yeah, you know what I mean? which which I liked. I mean, I think that occasionally the record does drop off a bit for me in terms of my taste. Like, um, there's a track called "Difference Between Left and Right," which I think is, yeah. re- is really a bit nondescript until there's like a sick bass line that hits, and then the tempo gets massively lifted. But until that yeah. point, until that point is a bit of a slog. Um, I kind of like what they went for on Yuppie Germs, like you said, that kind of like like seventies grungy punk vibe. Um, I'd have to listen to it a few more times to determine whether I think it actually worked for them. But at that point in the record, I think it did need a bit of a shot in the arm. Which that uh, yeah, exactly. It was so vital because the, 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 the two tracks that preceded it were almost identical in tempo. So regardless of how good they were or not, like it had, like you said, a revitalising aspect for the album that I definitely think it needed. And it brought you up to bring you down in the final sort of three tracks, which I really, yeah. really liked. I think this is a good record. It's got this kind of organic, meaningful songwriting. And it's the kind of movement that might restore a little bit more credibility to British rock. Now, I I can't uh, sit on this podcast and say that I think British rock is in a bad position. Because do you know what? I don't know whether it is. I haven't really been paying much attention to it because of the reasons that I mentioned at the start of this review. But if British rock was to be um, have its cup runoff over with bands like Asylums, there's no reason why I wouldn't get back on board, man. I mean, I think that this album is a 40-minute depiction of working-class life that that can get done time and time and time again. And unless it's done badly, I won't find it boring because, hey, guess what? I'm a Wolverhampton guy who lives a, who lives a, a working-class life. So I think this is a very cleverly uh, witty-written album uh, that at times does fall into the concept of repetition, but there's plenty of good stuff on here. Um, and I went left field picking this album. Uh, there was a lot of other like there was like a lot of metal and death metal albums I could have picked for us to do. But I'm really glad that I, that we branched further out again this episode and picked this. I think this is very solid, good record. Um, I think it's the third the third record. I'm going to be really, really paying attention to what comes next after this because, hey, mate, if they can really, really master this, who knows, man? Who knows? There might be like this Brit rock band that me and you were like, fucking hell, we'll give them the asylums. <laughs> the asylums are going to yeah, regenerate I, the whole scene. Like, who knows? Absolutely. What I like about this as well is it's, it's so obviously and abundantly British. Yeah. Uh, from the lyrical themes to the just the sound of the vocalist and... Um, the, the way that the, the way that these songs are constructed, but I completely agree with you. It's it's. I hope I hope as well that that, that continue to find one, you know, classic Sam and Chris choice, and then go away from it, man. Because I think it offers offers that offers that nice gap between that we can offer sort of different audiences and different listeners to what we're what we're capable of talking about and reviewing. Because as well, what this has proved is that we both can take something incredibly positive from an album like this too. Yeah. And for these for these guys moving forward, I agree with you. There is absolutely no reason 
why they can't be a successful band playing this type of music. Um, because, I mean, we really like the Menzingers. The Menzingers just completed a tour in the UK. Yeah. Where they were playing in front of academy-sized venues and seems to be doing perfectly well. There's yeah. no reason why Asylums can't do the reverse if they continue to play the way that they do. Going to move on to final topic of the show before my interview with Luke Rainsford comes in. Uh, the new Misery Singles, Ultra uh, Misery Misery Signals, sorry, new Misery Signals record, Ultraviolet. It's out on August seventh via uh, Basic Records. Now we're getting in way ahead of the curve here. Obviously, we're reviewing an album three weeks before it comes out. Uh, reason for that is because in two weeks' time, looking at the list of records that's coming out, I'm expected to have an absolutely massively stacked episode, and I couldn't possibly leave out Misery Signals, or nor could I leave out some of the bands that we're going to be talking about in two weeks. So I figured we're going to have to chuck this in now to, start, to stop fucking us from recording a three-hour episode in two weeks. So, <laughs> Ultraviolet, New Misery Signals record. Uh, it's the band's first album in seven years, and the first with their original members since their debut in 2004. Uh, that was called Of Malice and, Mag- and the Magnum Heart. Uh, Sam... I mentioned to you, well, I want to say two weeks ago, when I said mm-hmm. this is the record that we'd be reviewing, you said, well, I've never listened to them. What do they sound like? And I was like, oh, they're kind of like counterparts, hench or older brother. Uh, how accurate was I? Um, definitely when describing their back catalogue, you were absolutely accurate. Although I think they have slightly shifted away from that on this one. Well, I'm really glad you said that because... This very because because this is the original lineup for the first time since 2004, which was their debut record. Um, there's been a lot of fallouts with the band, that kind of stuff. If you're interested in finding out why the lineup's changed so much, you can Google it and stuff. Uh, I haven't really got the time to get into that here. So there's been a lot of lot of changes in piece of the puzzle. Uh, the band's reformation came around when they did a 10-year tour of their 2004 record of Madison and the Magnum Heart. And here we are. Now, Ultraviolet, for me, is very much a mirror image of that 2004 record of Madison and the Magnum Heart. Um, this is pretty much exactly what Misery Signals did 16 years ago. And I don't mean that as a criticism. I'm just saying that's, that's what it is. Uh, for Sam... How, do, how does this record sit with you? I really loved it, mate. I Amazing. really, 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 really enjoyed it. Um, the drummer. Incredible. Um, everything, everything about the musicianship and the way that it, it blends, actually. So, Misery Signals do a lot of things here that I just adore as a listener. I want to start off by saying that. Um, this has, a, at times, at its high point, has a very kill switch engage and Polaris feel. And at August Burns Red type metalcore, where they combine heaviness with like real sort of electronic technicality, um, and sort of gel together. And I think that's a that that for me, I, I'm all over that. That's my jam right there. So when I started hearing stuff like that, I started to get really sort of excited listening to this. Um, I think this opens brilliantly. I think I think the Tempest um, is a terrific opening track, and I, and I really like it just as a something for my OCD self. I really love it when a band's first single is their opening track. Because then it's like everything else is a mystery afterwards. And I like that. I, I don't know. There's something about that for me really works. Um, but it's got breakneck guitar work from start to finish. The, th- the it, it rotates between that. It's not quite thrash because it's metalcore, but there's a thrash drum beat going onto a metalcore riff. And I will always love that sort of thing. And there's so much of that here. And then they break into 
melodic, beautiful guitar harmonies that don't oversell the melodic element of the song. And by that, I mean is the guitars are doing beautiful melodic stuff, but the vocalists are continuing the heaviness and you get that juxtaposition really, really nicely. Um, I really love Sunlifter and River King as well. I oh. thought River King specifically, uh, I, you hear the opening of that and you think, oh, this is their ballad tune, third track in, fine. Oh. Uh, and then like 15 oh. seconds later, you're like, this is absolutely not their ballad song. This is completely different. Um, just satisfyingly heavy, like a monolith sort of um, moving from place to place. Just absolutely beautiful. The growls here are absolutely incredible. Then it kicks into those fast metal thrash pro thrash sections, but aren't too often in there where it gets boring. It's always a nice change of pace, um, which I want to mention as well. I said to you, when the first time I heard a song by Rizmi Signals, I was like, fuck me, their drummer must be struggling at times with this because some of the, the changes of pace were extraordinary. And that is absolutely the same here. I adored um, Through the Veils of Blue Fire as well. That opening, right? It's like, uh, uh, and he's screaming over the top. And I was like, please bring that back as an actual guitar riff, please. Please do that. And then he did that in the second verse. And I was like spinning around the room. It was beautiful. <laughs> I, was, I was so into it. Um, and then as it goes on, it starts getting into this sort of blended mel melody, doesn't it? There's elements of periphery here in some of the guitar work in Old Ghosts and the four. Um, there's some beautiful sort of like kill switch engage type stuff on cascade locks, which I think is the, the highlight of the album. It is. Um, just because it, because it's an absolutely beautiful song. And that's what I mean. I mean, I'm not saying recent kill switch cause I, I was going to think of this question for you for the pod. Um, would you agree that really the high watermark of metalcore is kill switch engage? Like as I lay dying, uh, as, uh, as daylight dies, that sort of period, that's, that's the ceiling of metalcore for me in terms of in, like in melody and Pre, pre Parkway Drive, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. Um, and this reaches that watermark on Cascade Locks here. Yeah. And um, Some Dreams, it, it follows the same, the concluding number follows the same sort of melodic trait. Um, the only thing is, I think that maybe that album, that song maybe could have been put in a different portion of the album because following um, Cascade Locks, it just felt a little bit similar. And I think that could have mixed, mixed it up a little bit more. But overall, there's some peak metalcore on this it is absolutely fantastic some of the guitar work is beautiful some of the, the vocal melodies are absolutely transcendent um the musicianship is as usual with any metal, good metalcore album is legitimately extraordinary love the guitar tone but also i love the fact that at no point do i sit here thinking listen to a metalcore album that i could have that could be interchangeable with any other metalcore album for the last 15 years i didn't get bored uh, i didn't think oh this could just be any metalcore album of the last 10 years or whatever this was legitimately independent of this band. And there were a few moments here that I thought were absolutely wonderful, really transcendent, really, really good. I'm a big fan of this. You know, this is, this is fucking great because a lot of people, Misery Signals is one of those bands that a lot of people aren't aware just how important they are, they have been to the bands of today. Like, counterparts just do not exist without Misery Signals. Like when you when you when you go down that pyramid, without misery signals, bands like counterparts just are not there. Bands like Chamber just are not there. And there's so much about this album that I love because when you listen to previous misery signals albums, now I, I think pretty much everything misery signals have done has been has been at least good at the very least. But when you listen to the previous stuff, 
and you, there's a reformation of the band, I'm thinking, right, are they going to do of Malice and the Magnum Heart again, or are they going to try and recreate what their last couple of albums were, but with Jesse Zaraska back on vocals? And I'm really glad that this is basically the the album that would have come after of Malice and the Magnum Heart. This is like a uh, like a throwback to 16 years ago, but like with a really really modern taste, mate. There's such a brutal texture on the guitars of this whole album. Would you not say? Absolutely, like absolutely. Fucking, there's, there's a combination of stuff. Man, it's a fucking rampant pace. Um, mm, the pace is beautiful. Unbelievable. Um, and I think I'd probably say that the drummer, Brandon Morgan, is probably the most important member of the band. Um, I think the, he definitely holds it all together, doesn't he? I mean, mate, Sunlifter, the amount of ch- ch- changes in tempo that he has to keep up with and not just like keep up with, but like be like a formative figure in the song. Like yeah. it's fucking absurd. I suppose the, to some, I suppose this album could potentially flirt with the concept of being overly one pace, but that's when your tracks like River King and Old Ghost become so important because like you mentioned, Mate, the way Jesse explodes into River King at like the one minute 30 mark, it's like fucking the Hulk running through a brick wall, the way he comes into that song. It's <laughs> yeah, so fucking sick. Um, the riff that opens the fall, oh my God, I could have fucking ripped the neck off fucking my laptop. I was, it's so fucking <laughs> brilliantly done. Uh, drumming on that song is unbelievably tight. There's this massive spoken word build up for a big crescendo and all about that. Big crescendos in metal songs are just fucking written, I'm pretty sure, just for me. Um, there's not a massive amount of tricks up the sleeve of this record, but I think that's one of the reasons why like, I really love the record. And that's what Misery Signals were in 2004. It's balls to the wall hardcore slash metalcore band that keep things simple in their style. And when you talk about like metalcore bands that are like are like really formative and like played figurehead parts people always say like kill such engage unearth as i lay dying a shadows fall i don't know why no one ever says misery signals I, it doesn't make any sense to me um they are they are really really a massive part of, of what made metalcore successfully in the mid 2000s for me i think maybe misery signals are the kind of band that like Code Orange might end up being in the sense of in 10, 15 years time, we might be talking about this really expansive, like hardcore metal, death metal, uh, punk rock album. And me and you be like, oh man, if it wasn't for Code Orange and the other people in the room be like, who? Do you know what I mean? And I think yeah, that might, I think, I think that might be the same thing for Misery Signals here. And that's a people, really sad thing because it's yeah, just such a talented band. Yeah, because they're so fucking sick. And obviously, I don't even need to say my thoughts about Code Orange. But and I think it is a shame that not enough people, in my opinion, credit Misery Signals for really, really paving the way for metalcore. Even with all that said, they'll put all the pins in that. This is a fucking great album for here and now. This is better than most metalcore albums that we spoke about this year. This is, I, I, I am all about this. And mate, Cascade Locks is, is the best track on the Highlight album. Highlight the record. Oh my God. Highlight the record. The guitar from Ryan Morgan. Fucking Unbelievable. Album. Massive Unbelievable. chorus that Jesse Bellows over. Fucking amazing. Absolutely. That, 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 that's why I love this, this, this album so very, very much from, from, from the listens I've had this week. It's just been an extraordinarily enjoyable record. Um, it's going to sound, um, it's going to sound a little bit heretic 
Um, for you, mate, but for for me, bro, this is better than Ghost Inside. Really? Yeah, yeah. I've right. the Ghost Inside album, and it's touch and go between this and Currents. Polaris is still a, is still the best metalcore album I've heard this year by a bit of a distance, but Misery Signals is like competing for second here. Fuck. Right. Okay. Yeah, I'm really into it. Really I mean, into it. for me personally, I, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, mate, I'm 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 really happy that you've got that much from the from the record, and I think like if anything it kind of re-emphasizes my point of just how great a band that they are, that look how much you loved Currents. You were really strong on the Ghost Inside yeah. record. And this is like easily a second for you, or if not easily, at least a swinging punch. It's in the conversation. It's in the conversation, absolutely. The thing that settles it for me, or is one of the things that, if I was creating an argument for them to be, the case for them, is that there is a, a variety here and a depth of songwriting style and structure that Currents and Ghosts Inside, while brilliant in their own way, the level of variety and depth I don't think is as as prevalent for those two albums. Now, if you want to make the argument that that's fine because what Ghosts Inside do is independently better than what Misery Signals do anyway, cool. I, I can accept that argument absolutely fine. It's all a state of preference. But for me, I, am all, I always find myself giving the personal edge to, to, to albums that prove that they can do like four or five different things really very well and misery signals have nailed quiet melody and hardcore heaviness and the thrash elements and this metalcore periphery-esque stuff simultaneously and for me that's such a such a difficult balancing act to do that i will always tip my hat to those so if you were to make the case that would be where i'd sit so i'd need obviously a few lessons down the road before we even talk about a, a top five or top ten down the road but misery signals is definitely going to be in the contention no doubt whatsoever what a fucking record, man. And what a way to end the show for this week. But it's not finished because coming up next is my Chris Meats interview with Luke Rainsford. Please stick around for that. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Remember, uh, like the video on YouTube, uh, subscribe to us and tell a friend about us. We are going to be back next week, not in two weeks' time. Next week, Sam, what record are we talking about in the greatest metal album of all time? This week, hitting number 10. We are doing a single episode on ACDC's Back in Black at number 10. Be sure to stick around for that. Uh, that is going to be coming out next Tuesday. Uh, we'll do that. And that will probably be about an hour, me and Sam going into incredible depth and detail on ACDC's Back in Black. Can't wait to do that. Um, my interview with Luke Rainsford is coming up right now. Do not go anywhere. Thank you for listening to this episode. We will be back in two weeks' time. We love you. Bye. So I'm now joined by Luke Rainsford. Dude, thank you so much for your time today, man. How are you getting on? Oh, I'm good, man. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Mate, I, I said this to you just as you came into the chat room, but God, mate, it has been years since we last spoke. Crazy. Yeah, I, I think I still lived in Wolverhampton the last time we spoke, which is like insane to think about. But you, yeah, defi- you definitely did live in Wolverhampton. Um, <laughs> and <laughs> a, a little bit of trivia for anyone listening. Uh, Luke, you were an absolute diamond and you, I think you might have been the first or possibly second guest on the old podcast that me and Sam used to do called Soundcheck. And, and bless you, Luke, uh, I, I was really terrible at, the, at doing this at the time. And, and you kind of knew that, but you came along and, and you did a great interview anyway, man. And it was, it's interesting looking back now because 
you're, it's like you and two different people between now and then. Your life is like completely changed from from what it looks like to me anyway since then. Yeah, man, for sure. Like, well, like back then I was a super awkward, like just kid who was into some bands and stuff and didn't really know what I was doing. And now it's, yeah, I'm way more confident, self-assured. It's, it's really cool. Um, it's really nice seeing that progress, I guess, like, especially for you having like three years of seeing me change. It's, yeah, it's really rad. I've never really thought about it too much, but it's, it's really cool to see that. We're going to get into the, the ins and outs of what's gone on over the last three years because I'm really fascinated and I found your journey and your success really rewarding to see as someone who kind of believe, like, believed in you from the off, even when you said you were like this young kid who just liked punk bands and stuff. Yeah. I, I always thought that, mate, that you had this like, really like innate ability to like craft and, and write songs that would resonate and to see like where you are now it is really cool to see man um, but, and we're, and we're, like we're going to get into the ins and outs of that a, a bit later on but when I do these kind of profile interviews I'm always curious to start with when was the first time you remember experiencing music and really finding it interesting more than just background noise so we're going right back to the beginning here Oh, that's, I've kind of grew up around music because my family were always super into like classic rock, like ACDC and like uh, stuff like that. <laughs> so I was always surrounded by it. Um, but I remember um, uh, when I got my own bedroom because he's sharing my brother and finally listening to my own music and finding my own things, I heard uh, Dookie by Green Day. Oh, dude. Amazing. Yeah, and just my world opened up. It went from before that, it was just music that my family listened to. And from then it was like, wow, this is a band that I found myself that I just love. And I just like put everything into that band. Like I used to sit in my room and uh, I was learning to play drums at the time. So I just, and I, but I could never afford a drum kit. So I just like <laughs> had some drumsticks in my room and I was like air drumming along to every Green Day record uh, for like the first like three years of my teenagehood. Like it, it was the best. It was so much fun. Um, but yeah, definitely when I heard Dookie for the first time when I was like 10 or 11. Me and Sam always say that we wish we were 16 when Dookie came out. Imagine, oh, being, imagine being like late teens in that moment of time. Man, like it must, it must have just been unreal. Because like if I was that age in 1994, it must have been the best thing because that record just shapes my entire music taste. Like yeah. the, the, my songwriting, my instrumentation, it just changed my life and that was over 10 years later like at the time it must have been insane i would kill oh. to go back <laughs> oh mate me too man i mean i can't think of many records that have been done that have captured a space in time as well as do maybe not certainly not better than dookie captured the mid-teenage or late teenage psyche in 1994 yeah just the whole like, apathy and just like feeling abandoned and stuff of just the 90s man it just oh. Nineties is rad. Like I, this, I watched a movie today called Mid Nineties, and it just made me miss like being a kid and playing Tony Hawk's and listening to just, like oh. like nineties punk and wearing like baggy t shirts and oh man, I, I miss it so. <laughs> <laughs> so from Dookie, do you end up at like Rancid, or did you go slightly more mainstream? Uh, I did go mainstream for a while, and then I sort of found more of the emo scene and. Um, that sort of thing later on where I got into more underground bands and the DIY scene and things like that. Um, so it, but it took me a while to get that. I, sort of, I went through the New Fame Glory and the Blink-182 and stuff. And all, all those sort of bands. I, I did delve into it because my brother was super into a lot of the older punk, but um, it was more the poppier end of it that I was interested in. 
Uh, and then when I got into bands like Modern Baseball, which led into bands like um, The Front Bottoms, and from then just basically any emo band I could find, that's when I really started to get into songwriting, and, uh, away from just listening to music I thought was cool. <laughs> I was kind of a late bloomer when it comes to having like a real a passion for finding music and pretty much mm. up until I was 18 I would listen to the music that was really popular at the time like if you came to me when I was 18 and said name me 10 bands right now that aren't like in the charts I would probably have struggled I was a real late bloomer man by the time you were in high school did you already have this like encyclopedic knowledge of the bands that you liked and bands that they toured with and then albums that said bands had done etc that were good and ones that were bad yeah it was about between the ages of like 13 and 15 is when i sort of really got into that side of it uh, it was all i was interested in for a while like it's, i didn't have any of the hobbies it was like i'd get home from school i'd ignore all my homework and all that shit <laughs> just um <laughs> like read wikipedia articles and listen to records and stuff i loved it um i can't do that now my attention span is out the window I can't read a full like Wikipedia article to save my life. Or like, a lot of the bands I love, I can't name a single member or anything. It's it's pretty bad. But um, back then, yeah, hell yeah. Like any any band I could find that I thought was cool, I'd try and learn everything about and listen to the entire discography and find all the weird splits and EPs and B sides and stuff. I was all about that. Had, had like your... an iPod Classic. Do you remember the uh, oh the iPod, iPod Classics, classic. man? Yeah, dude. I used to like have so much music on there, and it was. I used to love like going through and cataloging it, putting the album art on, making oh. sure it was all. Oh, man, better times. <laughs> did did your love of music at the time come at the detriment to your education? Had it be? Had you already decided? Well, I'm going to be a musician, and I guess I'll go to school because I legally have to. But I'm not interested in this. I'm going to be a musician. Had you already made that decision? Yeah, straight up. It was. I was always that really smart kid that like the t- the teachers always wanted to you know push into academic subjects and. I'm, I, at the time, I was quite natural academic. I was, I was that really annoying kid who could do like no work and get straight A's and stuff. But, <laughs> right. like, God, looking back, I'm like, oh fuck you, dude. But um, <laughs> um, I, I'm allowed to swear on it, by the way. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah, I'm mate. Like, cool. Just checking. Yeah. yeah, just checking. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, when I sort of got, really got into music in my teens, I sort of just gave up with school completely. I was like, this is not. It just doesn't interest me at all. I don't care about equations. I don't care about what happened in. 1962 you know i don't give a fuck i want to listen to punk music and go to punk shows and write terrible songs <laughs> when you get that kind of revelation from people that i've spoken to before it does become kind of difficult because you've got like parents or guardians that obviously they don't really get it a lot of the time in terms of someone who's got this real passion to get into the music industry and they don't care for anything else. Sometimes parents or guardians have a difficult time like getting behind that because they, they understand or have this idea of how difficult that is to get into and they want everyone to be an accountant, right? But with your family, because they were already so music orientated, was that a much easier sell for you? Or did you still have that difficulty of, hey, Luke, we think you're really talented, but it's really hard to get into the music industry. So can't you just oh, do business studies? <laughs> you know what I mean? Nah, man, it was, it was hard. It was really rough. I, like, I'm, I'm completely estranged from my family these days. I don't even talk to any of my family. Uh, it, oh, was right, okay. really, it was really bad. It was like, I was like, like having to play shows and just not tell anyone where I was going. I was going on tour and just like... Oh being like i'm going out <laughs> and then while i was on the tour already out like yeah i'm on I'm, I'm tour by the way i'm not going like it was really rough i had to like 
be a bit of a dickhead to be honest just to do it but I wanted to do it regardless um yeah I, I never really had that like family support around it but I was I wanted to do it that bad that I was willing to do whatever it took um like for a while I was couch surfing and stuff I wasn't staying with my family because of like various reasons I was just out staying with friends staying with anyone who would let me crash on their sofa exchange for merch or whatever and just yeah man playing shows because it's what I wanted to do I didn't care if it put me in danger I didn't care if it meant that I didn't have that support from people who you know were supposed to support me I just I wanted to do what I wanted to do like no however I had to do to get it so that actually links perfectly to a conversation that me and you had years ago. I think I bumped into you in like a nightclub and we, we'd had a few, uh, we had a few drinks. Uh, and I think you said to me, you were like, we were talk- I was talking to you about touring and stuff. And you said to me, dude, I would play like the rotting garage in the, the worst, most depraved place in the world. If you told, literally, me, two, yeah. if you told me two people would turn up. I, I, I would play literally anywhere. Uh, and that, yeah, ethos, uh, that ethos, I suppose, would have been bought into you from the second you find Green Day, right? Because that's what, pre-Dookie, that's what Green Day were. Around the Kaplunk era, Green Day were that band that were playing, like, literally anywhere that had an amp. Yeah, man, it was the same for me. It was like, I saw all these bands just doing it, and it was like, for me, it was never about, I don't care about getting big. I don't want to get big. I'm, I, I'm not, like... I'm too like outspoken about my like political opinions and stuff to get big anyway, so I don't care. But um, <laughs> uh, I just want to make music, and if people want to come see that, that's incredible. But for me, it's all just I I, I want to spread the music I want to create, and that that that's as far as it goes for me. Anything else is a bonus. The fact that I have been able to do cool stuff is amazing. But regardless of that, as like you say, if one person or two people show up, that's the coolest thing in the world to me ever. Even if I am playing in like you know some you know asbestos infested like, <laughs> attic somewhere <laughs> you know um it's it's interesting because that when you when you speak about like the punk ethos that you had already bought into because one of the first bands you got into or obsessed about was green day mm. when you were this kind of musician that would you know pretend you were at your friend's house while secretly you snuck out on tour was there any point where you're on someone's sofa, you've just barely made enough for the night to get a train home or whatever it would be? Was there any point where you were like, oh man, is this is this worth it? Oh, dude, I still get that now. Like, it's 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 rough sometimes. Like, I, I wish we lived in a world where we didn't have to worry about money or didn't have to worry about that, but it's it can be rough. There's been shows in the middle of tour where it's like, I don't know if I can afford to finish this tour, but just had to like make it happen and it's, those nights can be rough. Like if you've driven hours and hours to play somewhere and it's just not the show you want it to be, it can be really soul crushing. But then, you know, there's always going to be that one moment on on stage, that one show or that one song, but just everything clicks. And it's like, I don't, it was worth it. It was worth that journey because the, the musical journey is not always about it being perfect all the time. It's about learning from those bad experiences and taking it in. Th- those lows make those highs even better. So even though like sometimes it is very much like why am i doing this there's always something that reminds me every, like every single tour every single every single day were there any specific evenings that stick out in your mind that you remember <laughs> being a, spe- a particularly difficult oh, time yeah straight away so i um one of my first times playing out of town i played a show in sheffield and i can't remember the venue I think I may have like just blanked out most of the night from my memory, but um, I had like Dude, a Sheffield is a it, Sheffield is a is a quite far from Wolverhampton. Was this when you were solo, or were you with the band back then? Uh, no, solo. This was solo. Uh, right. Okay. 
So I, just, I got like a megabus up. I, I used to do like most of my touring by a megabus because uh, I was like broke as hell and I could just just about afford to get megabuses everywhere. And um, I had a, I had one booked on the night. And um, uh, oh no, sorry, I've got it wrong. So I I had a, somewhere to stay, somewhere to crash. Uh, like a, just someone on Twitter had offered me a sofa to sleep on. And I finished my set and I'm like selling merch and I'm getting packed there and all that. And I checked my phone at about like 11 p.m. For, for a message from him sent where like, oh, dude, you can't stay here anymore. Uh... And I, I had a coach booked the next day at like, I think it was like 11 a.m. or something. And dude. I had to just stay up all night in this 24-hour McDonald's. Just me and my guitar, a tote bag of merch. Like, dude. Just, just sitting up, just drinking terrible mcdonald's coffee all night uh and like the show was okay but it was just like like nine hours of me sitting in this mcdonald's just like why did i do this no that is definitely one of those moments where you think this is worthy (laughs) but then like next time i went to sheffield uh there was people who had been to that show who'd found my music at that show and came back and came to see me again it was like oh man like it was still worth it even though it was one of the worst nights of my life and just sucked (laughs) it was like people still like found something cool in my music enough to want to come back and see me again. And that was the coolest thing in the world for me. So even though it sucked and it was one of the, like the lowest moments of my career, for sure, it was still had like a really, you know, good positive ending in some way. The last time we spoke was so long ago that you were still with, with a band uh, back then. Yeah. Um, do you remember a specific moment where you thought, you know, uh, I could, I would rather do this on my own. Or were those the conversations, or was it the fact of the the band whose name I've got? I'm going to be honest with you. I'm sorry, I can't even remember. Uh, it's been that long ago. There <laughs> yes, were a few. I, I was, there were a few, weren't there? There were two or three. Uh, I've been maybe? in a couple of bands. Yeah, the, the, the main one was a band called Layover, and we did. Layover, we, we, yeah, that was yeah, it. we we did pretty well. Um, that just sort of ended because we were at all at different spaces in our life. Like the like, some of us were like getting jobs and houses and shit, and some of us were just like super busy with other projects. Uh, for me, it was more just like uh, I, I just uh, it was kind of accidental. I was putting all my effort into this band, and I was doing solo stuff just as a creative outlet for songs I was writing that I didn't feel comfortable sharing with the band because uh, some of them were just really, really personal. I didn't really want to uh, sort of put those lyrics behind friends that I behind my because at that point I wasn't that comfortable talking about my mental health, and my emotions that much. Yeah, uh, and then even though I was putting all my energy and my effort and my money into layover, people just gravitated towards my solo stuff. And as much as both projects did really well, my solo stuff was getting all these opportunities. I was getting off at tours. I was getting off at really cool festivals and just like loads of stuff. Like it was, it was hectic and it kind of just felt like without even trying, I was being offered all this cool stuff. So what, what would happen if I put all my energy into this? And it was just the perfect timing of people were so busy with other things and I was getting offered so much cool stuff. It just, the stars kind of aligned a little bit. Um, so there was never like a moment where it was like I'd rather do this. It was just sort of natural, a really natural process. Has your we're going to skip a little bit ahead before going backwards, but has your songwriting process now got to the point where you think you might find it difficult to be in a band again? Kind of like I do have a band for this project, my solo project now, and we work kind of in a similar way to my old band, uh, but. Um, it, originally we were going to like sort of rebrand and make it a band but just so much work had gone into all the tours i'd done that uh, uh we didn't really want to like you know like change names and stuff because we didn't want to risk like losing any you know any 
notoriety i say yeah yeah not necessarily notoriety but like just <laughs> you know what i mean it was just like a lot like we didn't want to like undo a lot of work that had already been done but um it's kind of the same process now that it used to be which is quite nice because I, I, there's nothing better than writing songs with your friends like it's the coolest thing in the world like it's it's so much more fun than just me with a guitar <laughs> but um yeah it, it's it's really fun it's amazing you know I thought, I'm going to check out Scylla Records before we came on just to see how they had um, featured the, the record. And, you know, I was just looking through and, like, bundles of the, the uh, vinyl, the World in Colour and stuff, sold out, you know. Yeah, and, and the coolest that, thing. Dude, that is the coolest thing, man. Because for me, as, as I mentioned, just as we came on, when I last spoke to you, you were the, just the young guy who was really, really into music and just wanted to just play the rotting garage in someone's house anywhere in the world if two people turn up. And now I'm looking at bundles that have sold out for your vinyl, man. You know, when you think about the journey, is it hard for you to believe that it's ended up like this? I still don't believe it. I'm still convinced I'm going to wake up one day and it's going to go back to no one giving a shit, but... I'm so thankful that anyone does. Oh, it's like the coolest thing in the world to me. Like, it's all just—it's kind of bizarre to me. Like surreal. Like, I just write songs in my bedroom and then bring it to my friends, and we help make it into something that people want to hear. And then the fact that people actually do want to hear it is just—I never quite believe it, like ever. And it was especially with this release because it was super scary, like not being able to tour from it. Like this, this like EP was originally just going to be like sort of a, a tour exclusive vinyl, just for some of the tours I had coming up, but. With a lot of that falling through, just I was super scared. I was like, "Is anyone going to care about this release? Is it going to do well?" And then when I saw how much people were buying, and like, it's already been my most successful release ever, and I've not even had a chance to tour it yet. And that's just, I get super like emotional about it. It's like proper like, it just feels so personally gratifying that all that hard work is like paying off. And it just, man, it's 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 just incredible. I'm so lucky to have that support from people. I, I just will never ever take that for granted from anyone. You know, I remember in 2016 when you did I'm Nothing Like My Dad Turned Out To Be, which yeah. went, now you've prefaced with, you know, you have a, a strange relationship with your family, obviously. Yeah. Uh, that gives even more credence to the concept. However, I remember I was so happy for you. I was like, that is wicked that Luke has got to do this. I was, but I was thinking, I really hope he gets to do a second, you know, because... Mm. It happens sometimes, doesn't it? It, it? it seems like something's going so well and then like the brakes just get put on it and now where there's uh, a difficulty in terms of production or a lack of desire turns up. And then, dude, literally a year later, I feel at home with you drops. And that was, mm. that was, on, Scylla, that was on Scylla as well, wasn't it? Yeah, man, I've been with Scylla for all my releases so far. Yes. Yeah. yeah, rad. Let's just talk a little bit about that. The writing process for I Feel at Home with you, was that like the first time where you thought, oh, actually, I've actually got like a growing audience there that I can tangibly see is growing every week. There's legitimately expectations. People are, are waiting on this record. Are those thoughts going through your head at the time where you're writing this? Uh, it was at the time I was recording it. So a lot of the songs I had written already, like so when I first started to notice that anyone was even listening or paying attention, it was around the time of recording it. And that was weird because I'd already had the songs written, but then it was going into the studio with this perspective of like, oh my God, now people are actually going to hear this. I want this to be good. And it was so stressful because before that, it was just me having fun in the studio, like not thinking anyone was going to hear it, not even caring if people heard it or not. And now it was like, 
man, like, what if people hate it? <laughs> what, like, what if people think it's just my old stuff? What if just no one cares? What if it just flops? Um, but yeah, that's, man, I, I'm still super proud of that record. And I, I still play a lot of songs that record, like now, like, when, well, or will do when, um, when it's safe to. And yeah, it, it was really, it's really weird looking back on that because I was still just that awkward kid who didn't really know what he was doing. And it's it's kind of nice being able to play those songs now because back then I was in a really bad mental place. Like as much as I love doing music and stuff, like much my like outside of my music life, like things weren't going great for me. And it's really nice being able to play those songs I wrote from in a really bad place. Uh, now I'm doing quite well and I'm quite healthy mentally and um, just in a much better physical place as well. Then and almost sort of changed my perspective on them. And like it kind of makes the sad songs feel less negative. It makes them feel like a journey into the person I am now and it's, it's really special to be able to do that and the fact that anyone still cares about those songs is is amazing your social media presence is something <laughs> that is wicked and it, I think that's like a really big part of how your fan base has grown because dude you get so much interaction from your fan base and oh yeah man like it's I, so I cool to see Thank you, man. Yeah, I, I love talking to people on like the internet. It's especially like now we're in lockdown and stuff. It's I've been relying on it a lot, but I've always enjoyed it so much. I just think like if someone's taken the time out of their day to listen to my music, then they they deserve as much of my attention as I can like you know like give them with it before it gets unhealthy for me. But I, it's yeah, I, I love it. I love talking to people, hearing about their stories, hearing what they're doing, and just having a good time and. I think the most important thing for me is I've always tried to be like myself on social media. I don't want to like create a persona about anything. It's just, it's just me like sometimes just being dumb and just telling dumb jokes and just being stupid. And sometimes drawing attention to things I think where there's problems and even the music industry or the world, like sometimes to my own detriment, like I know for sure I probably lost opportunities because of uh, I'm quite outspoken about my opinions on the music industry and stuff. Um, Yeah. To me, it's always, I want to be authentic and I want to be myself and, I think people definitely see that and I think that's probably why people kind of attach themselves to my music so much because they know that I'm not just putting on a persona or putting on this this mask I'm just always being myself and that's what I try and do. That's one of the things that I thought was really cool actually because even though uh, I think in in our lifetime I've probably seen you about 10 times but each time like we've always had like these kind of really like funny, interesting, like off-kilter conversations. And sometimes you see people's social media presence and you question, is that really them? But I look at yours and I know that's you, even with my limits, even with our relatively limited interactions with each other. I've always known that is actually you. And I can, it's really apparent that you take being you on social media really seriously, which I think is really important. I do like this. It depends on the on the band because there's some bands who have like these like really intricate like social media branding things and that's cool too. But um, it's just not for me. Like for me, it's just I always just want to keep it as I'm that guy who just writes these songs and it's himself. And if you want to hear it, that's cool. If not, that's fine too. I'm just I'm just doing my thing and uh, just, you know trying to spread things I think are important and talk about things I think are important. And people want to hear that they can, but I I'm not like too like bothered with like branding as at the moment i just want to you know just do my thing <laughs> wanted to speak quickly about 2000 trees uh, oh, reason, yeah. reason being i was there last year uh, and i went with uh, another mutual friend of ours richard wellington uh, mm. i went with him 
and another friend of ours. And <laughs> it was quite funny, actually. It was quite late in the evening, and Rich, Rich came up to me, and uh, he was saying, oh, um, if we can, let's go over to the acoustic stage, because a friend of mine's playing. I was like, oh, who is he? He's like, oh, Luke Ranch. I was like, oh, no way. I, was like, I didn't even know. I, like, that's wicked. I was like, oh, no. I explained how I knew you, etc." And <laughs> he said to me, that, and this is like how much of a nice guy you are. <laughs> he said to me that he caught you just before you were starting your set and he'd started talking to you and you had to stop him and say, Rich, it's been really good to see you, man. But literally my set starts in like 30 seconds. Uh, you're going to you. I'm gonna have to catch you later. Which is uh, when Rich told me, I was like, well, I'm going to have to stay away from him because if I grab him, I'll be with him for another 15, 20 minutes because no one can ever shut me up. The, I, I'm really bad for just like talking over like <laughs> important things I should be doing. I, I missed like an entire bit of press uh, at Slam Dunk one year. I, I, uh, it's so embarrassing because I was just talking to people. I looked at the time and I was like, oh shit, I've just like missed like so much press. <laughs> I, just, the, like, I just love talking to people. <laughs> the reason why I brought that up though, the, the bigger reason, um, I realised when I was at 2000 Trees, because I always knew it was like a cool festival, but I didn't realise that it's actually probably, in my opinion, the, the best festival I've been to. And I've been to most major festivals in the UK, from Download, Reading, Leeds, even V Festival back in the day, you name them, you know, most of them have been there. I don't think there's a better festival for showcasing artists than 2000 Trees that I've seen, and that's including Slam Dunk. That's a personal opinion. What are your experiences yeah, of playing Trees? Yeah, I, I love it, man. It's 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 run by such a small team that it's just so the passion oozes out of every inch of that festival. I love it. I, I'm it sucks not spending my summer there this year. It's the highlight of every summer. Man, I love it. It's just unlike any other festival. Uh, I I love how diverse and inclusive it is. I love how like it's not just um, like novelty or like trendy acts. It's bands people actually love and are passionate about. It. It's uh, artists that deserve those breaks that don't sometimes don't get those opportunities. There's oh, I, I just love it so much, and it's just the loveliest festival ever. Everyone's so nice. There's never any like weird drama, or it's just it's just such a fun time. And it's it's small enough that you can get a real sense of community and yeah. see the same faces every year. But it's yeah, not man. so small that it's but it's still big enough that it's still an amazing opportunity. It's oh, I love it so much, man. I can't wait to go back next year. How many years have you played? Was that was was that? I, I can't imagine last year was your first year. Uh, no, I played two years now. Uh, so uh, 2018, 2019. Um, I, I always try and do a few sets. So there's like a busking stages, and I always try and make it yeah. a personal mission to try and play as many sets as possible. I think 2018 I played four sets, and last year I played five. I mean, <laughs> yeah. So just like always, like the main forest set, and then just like little tiny like unplugged busking sets around, and just it's so good. It's so much fun. Last year, um. Like the cool thing about trees is always little busking stages. A band called Wallflow did like a Weezer cover set, which is really good fun, uh, which turned into just like emo anthems. Awesome. Um, there was like a, uh, my friends of the state did a Green Day cover set, which was so cool. And it's just, it's really cool to have that atmosphere. It's almost like, it just feels like what I imagine like old, old festival to be like. Sort of like I don't want to sell it at Woodstock, but like like you know like stuff like that where it's just super chill. Everyone's just yeah. having a good time and it's not as big and corporate as some of the other festivals can turn out to be. You mentioned like a, a, a sense of communal feeling at trees, which, I, which I've only been once, which was last year, but I, I absolutely get that. And I think that trees is probably 
for the small to medium sized artists, I think trees is probably the most important. Or tree, uh, festivals like trees are probably the most important thing on their calendar, right? Because hell yeah, on, I mean. I mean, I love download. Download's wicked, but even more so at Trees, people have like a real yearning to discover new artists. Um, you find that literally from like twelve in the twelve o'clock in the afternoon, people are just wandering around trying to find someone purposefully that they hadn't heard of, mm. and I'd never experienced that at a festival before. Usually, it's let's look at the planner and we'll plan our day around the people that we know we like. Whereas at Trees, the amount of people that I bumped into that were like, "Oh, we just walked into this stage just to hope we discover a new artist," and that's mate, that's so important. I think it says a lot to like how well their lineups are picked because you you just trust them to know that there's going to be someone good pretty much no matter where you are. It's oh man, I, I don't think I've ever seen a bad set of trees. Like I don't think I've ever seen a, a, a band that I don't like at trees. Like it's it's unreal. Just gonna break away um, slightly from trees. Hmm. You are uh, somewhat uh, one another reason why I've got a lot of respect for you. Uh, you like to speak up for the inclusivity or sometimes lack thereof uh, in music, in music. Um, I'm, I'm not going to expect you to go into detail here. Um, don't worry. But wh- how do you think we're doing in terms of uh, the music industry as a whole, in terms of, for me, there, there seems to be an idea of there's areas that are trying to move, mm. to move forward and we're trying to progress. But it feels like as well to me, like there's still that, if you put a gun to my head, I'd say there's there's more of a percentage that's still lagging behind in terms of really moving forward into the, into the 21st century. Uh, but how you being on the front line, you'll know much more than me on that. How how are we doing as a whole? Um, so it's it's not really my place to talk about it too much because you know, like it's like a straight white guy. It's like yeah, that's the thing. That's, yeah, yeah <laughs> but, I understand that. But um, like we're doing better, but we've got a hell of a lot of work to do. A hell of a lot. Um, the thing that I've noticed a lot is a lot of it is very performative. It's a lot of people having these diverse lineups just to make themselves look good. It's not giving marginalized groups those spaces to create their own communities within yeah. these existing scenes. Um, I think that's a really big issue that happens quite a lot. Um, so I, I think a lot of it falls down to people with that privilege that so people like, like the white artists, the male artists, the straight artists to share those spaces with like b- bands from different backgrounds, like, you know, black artists, uh, LGBTQ plus artists and women artists and just giving them space in their own scenes whilst also amplifying those separate scenes as well. And just sort of showcasing all these different communities that exist. Um, I, I think the worst thing that someone with a privilege can do is be quiet about it. You, you should be using that privilege and your platform to address these issues and almost like encourage other people to care about these issues as well. Because the more people that care, the more people that put effort into creating uh, spaces and amplifying those voices that need to be heard. Dude, I, I couldn't agree more. And I'm really glad you said that because looks like for me and like you've said the two straight white dudes what do we know about it do you know what i mean yeah but for me i feel like it actually it's got to the point now where i feel like for a long time it's been the case of well i don't show any prejudice to anyone against anyone so i'm okay but i don't think that's enough anymore 
it's no, not en- no, it's it... not enough to not be prejudiced anymore. I feel like it's... we all need to be anti, vocally anti prejudice to to stomp that out. Yeah, man, I, it's never been enough. I just, I, I guess some, it's been a lot of work into just even making people realise there was an issue in the first place. Um, I, I, I guess for me, it was I've always made friends with a lot of artists from different scenes. Like I've got a lot of friends who are in, um, like like predominantly trans uh, yeah. members band or predominantly uh, like LGBTQ plus community uh, bands. And um, I guess learning about it firsthand from friends was what sort of made me aware of it a lot earlier than a lot of people but um the thing that i've always done is just listen to like those communities listen to what they are saying because like everyone makes mistakes uh, i've made mistakes i've said things that in good with with in good intentions that like weren't necessarily put across the right way yeah and i think the most important thing we can do is just take hold ourselves accountable for our, all our own internal prejudices that everybody has because society, society itself isn't in turn like you know inherently prejudiced against a lot of people and we have we all have so many biases in ourselves that we need to address and i think listening to those communities and those voices is the most important step into eradicating it hey dude look at bands like nervous man nervous are, are so great like oh, such a band they, did brilliant. you see those at trees last year i did see them at trees they, they were wicked so much fun but yet so much passion and like yeah Oh, just oh, so good. And their last record was great as well. I, re- I remember. Yeah. Um, I remember reviewing that. Uh, really, they're a really great band, man. That they deserve the world. <laughs> Nervous do. It's, they're great, it sucks man. When when you see bands talking about really important things, and you know that even talking about that is like making the opportunities harder. But I know that most bands who are talking about those things don't care. They don't care about the opportunities. They just care about saying what needs to be said and using that platform for good rather than using it just to sell records because like i mean obviously we all need money you know obviously we do but spreading a good message and putting across things we care about is so much more important than making a few extra pounds on some record sales you know i've taken up a lot of your time dude which, which i knew i would i find you a really fascinating oh, no, person to talk to you just be look just be glad i'm not drunk while we're doing this good lord i'd keep you another two hours probably um <laughs> just as we start winding down Let's move on to World in Colour. Um, mm. As that EP comes out, I mean, obviously, I, I, I listened to it um, at length. Great as I knew it would be. Um, I, I, it was actually quite cool for me because one of our writers, Dan Hillier, tremendous writer, tremendous person. He's like a, a massive, massive fan of yours. And he mentioned a uh, loose available for an interview with anyone fancy. I immediately jumped on. I told him I, I, I know you relatively well. And he was like, that's wicked, man. Luke's like, he's such an amazing artist. Like, it's wicked that you know him. And I was like, well, I say know him. We've bought each other a few times when we're drunk and stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. as, as that EP comes out, where, how are things for you right now? Man, it's, it's crazy to see. It's like, it went, up to the release date, it was really terrifying. It was like, this is a release i'm not touring it's something that is just we've got to just go purely with what people think we've just got to hope that people like it and it's already been my most successful and most sold record i've ever done like without even having chance to tour it so that is unreal for me and even outside of that and just people have just responded so well to it i've tried some new things and i've tried some different sounds taking influence in different places and that was terrifying it was I, I was worried people were going to think that i was moving away from what makes me what makes my music my music but people responded so well and it just it was so gratifying to know that i could let those influences in and people would still like what i do i don't have to limit myself to just doing the acoustic thing i can 
like in those pop influences like in those sort of 90s indian like um, punk. Yeah. yeah yeah and that, that's just that's just great to know i could do that and i'm so i'm just so happy that people like it it was such a relief i think like anyone that knows me know how terrified i was up to releasing that i was talking to my friends pretty much every day just man i i'm so scared i hope people like this and i, I just can't wait to get to play it live and see people's reactions to it in person that's going to be the coolest thing in the world dude for me huge step up in production value as well like tiptoe mm. or mate like you just mentioned like like 90s like synth vibe awesome massive step up mm. in terms of production value was that very much a conscious decision going in that you wanted to make this leap in terms of um, aesthetic sound yeah man it was it was kind of a mixture of being lucky enough to have sold enough merch and had that support for people to be able to afford the extra studio time to really put effort into making it sound how I wanted. And also I've always done the raw production, just the super simple songwriting. I wanted to step it up to a new, try some new things, you know, cause uh, I, th I think if you don't try new things as an artist and try those different styles of production, you, you can stagnate. And I I'm so happy with how it's turned out. I, I didn't want it to be so well produced. It sounded inauthentic or plastic or fake, but I, I wanted it to sound good quality enough that the songs that i loved had that quality they deserved and that people who are going to buy it deserve and i, I just think it's yeah I, it was definitely a conscious decision and I, I i love how it sounds so much it's the first release i've ever done where i've been fully proud of everything about it there's not been a thing about it that i want to change and that's that's really nice to have that dude uh, i touched on it at the start of the show so so rewarding uh, to see where you've come in in four years um, thank you man th this has been really cool man i really hope it's not four years till i till i get to speak to you again oh yeah man i mean hopefully next year festivals are back on and we can like yeah actually talk over well i don't drink anymore but over a uh, an alcohol free cider maybe yeah well unfortunately <laughs> unfortunately for you i do <laughs> so you might want to catch me early in the morning when i haven't had one yet dude uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me man uh oh, it's, dude, been pleasure, amazing. it's been amazing to catch up with you um so, yeah, so excited for what comes next in your career uh, and congratulations on everything you've achieved so far. I can't think of anyone who deserves it more, man. Oh, bless you, man. Thank you so much. That's so kind of you to say. Yeah, I'm stoked to see you, man. Dude, it's been a pleasure. I will catch you hopefully as soon as possible. Oh, yeah, man. See you soon. Thank you so Take much. Take care, again. dude. Bye-bye. See you, bud.